rock back on the block from a quick little stint with Ivy's flock. Two things on my list need many. A kiss from Nurse Joy and Officer Jenny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to WGTC Radio, the official podcast of Entertainment Website. We got this covered. And we were just listening to the Pokemon Christmas Bash, Christmas Bash CD. Christmas Bash CD. I can't get the words out because it doesn't seem real. <laughs> yeah, that... You you just heard the wonderful dub voice of Brock yes. rapping the most awful rap I've ever heard in my entire life. If you've not heard this, go to iTunes, find Pokemon Christmas Bash, listen to the sample of the first track. It's got raps from Brock and Misty and Ash, and it's awesome in a terrible, yeah, terrible way. It's awesome way. and horrifying, and it will complete you as a person. Yes, because you will have seen, like, the antithesis of art. Yeah, exactly. It's... <laughs> it's, it's I just can't believe this thing exists, Sean. And it's existed for a long time. This is from the year 2001. Yep. It is that's, over 11 years old. That's, that's sad. Yeah. It's sad that that thing exists. And it's kind of sad that we subjected all the listeners to it. <laughs> but, okay, so, so we play that because it's, it's Christmas time here in the world. Is there Christmas... Is it going to be Christmas time here in the world? I was going to say, I was going to say in America. Are you, are you but, saying that for all of our friends on Mars who have a different calendar? Maybe. I, if, if they do, I'd like to move there. Um, Shout anyway. out to Gleep Gorp on Mars. <laughs> yes. yes. I'm a fan. Hope Gleep Gorp's doing well. We get mail from him every week. We can't yeah. read it. It's in yeah. a different language. Mm-hmm. Martian runes. Right. In any case, is there Christmas in the Pokemon world? Like, in the Digesis of Pokemon? Do they have Christmas? Was there, like, a, like was mm. Jesus a Pokemon who, like, got nailed to the cross? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he, like, lost a battle. His trainer got really mad and just... Yeah, Jesus fainted on the cross. He fainted so that we didn't have to. He fainted for our sins. It was super effective. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I, okay, now, now that all of us here at WGTC Radio are going to hell, we're making Jesus Pokemon jokes. I'm, I'm happy we did that. Yeah. Alright, so, what are we doing this week, Sean? Not talking about Pokemon, weirdly enough, even though it seems like now we should. Yeah. I haven't played a Pokemon game in years. It's been so. a long time. So we will not be talking about Pokemon, but what we will be talking about is sort of best of 2012 stuff. We at WGTC Radio, we like to talk about movies, we like to yes. talk about video games, we like to talk about TV. And so, random bullshit, too. Yes. So we will be talking about all of those things on this podcast. Mostly gonna, random bullshit. Yes. We'll talk about the best movies of 2012, the best video games we played in 2012, the best TV shows, and the best random bullshit that we want to talk about in yeah. 2012. So, probably going to be a long one, but it's our last show of the year, and so we're going to go out on a high note, we hope. Uh, We will be back in January. January 7th, I believe, will be the date of our next podcast. We will take the next week off, because I'm going to be out of town. Um, Not a whole lot to talk about either, but when we get back, we will obviously talk about the Doctor Who Christmas special, because we we have to. Yeah, it's it's an obligation. It's a law. Yeah, and if, you know, Sean sees some movies that are opening now, you know, like... In December, we may talk about those too, including Django Unchained and some other stuff. So it'll just be a catch-up episode next time. But we'll be taking a week off um, next week, so this one will have to tide you over, and we hope it does. It's coming out Christmas Eve, so if like Christmas Day you have to be with your family and they're really annoying you, you can just go off in a corner with your like little iPod earbuds, just listen to us talk about shit. Yeah, this is our Christmas present to the world and Gleep Corp. Yes, I'll clock Gleep Corp. Yep, I'll clock indeed. Yep. Alright, so, you want to start with the best movies of 2012, Sean? Sure, why don't we? Let's do it. I'm going to load up the webpage here. 
Uh, first talk about, like, I guess I saw pretty much everything in 2012. What did you see this year, Sean? Anything good? Almost nothing. I tend okay. not to watch, go to the theater and watch new movies because, I don't know, there's a big, there, there is a, like, a century-long backlog of movies that I still need to get through from having mine been born in, yeah. you know, not 1920. Yes. So, I tend to watch older movies, but, you know, I watched sort of all the ones we talked about on the podcast, like The Avengers, yeah. Dark Knight Rises, Amazing Spider-Man, uh, Skyfall, Lincoln. Yeah. And for me, personally, the best movie I saw this year was Lincoln. I think okay. that was a really phenomenal film. And that is on my top ten, and we'll talk about it again in a little bit. Um, as far as runners-up, I mean, just stuff that oh, we I saw. I also obviously saw The Hobbit. Yes. That was one I saw. Uh, and that was one of my runners-up, I think, on my top 30. That came in at number 15. And it was higher than I thought it would be, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, even if I had some issues with The Hobbit, The Hobbit is a movie I am going to spend like more money on it and money and time on in my life than most of the films this year. Mm-hmm. Because it's part of the, you know, Peter Jackson, Peter Jackson Middle Earth mythology. It's going to go in my Blu-ray collection and it's several times, I assume, for the different re-releases. Yeah. And it was definitely good enough to warrant that, so I had to, I had to put it pretty high on the runners-up. So it was there. I had the Avengers higher than that. I think I had the Avengers at number 14 in a tie with Cabin in the Woods because those two movies, to me, I always think of kind of lumped together because they achieve a lot of the same highs for me in terms of what they do really well. And they both have, they're both from Joss Whedon and they both have Chris Hemsworth in it. Yes. So they're basically just the same movie, honestly, if you look at it that way. Chris Hemsworth is is awesome. Yeah. Should be in more stuff. Although then he'd probably die from overwork. Yeah, he, he has been doing a lot of work. <laughs> well, it's basically. funny because at least two of the movies he was in that came out this year, Cabin in the Woods and Red Dawn, he made way before he was famous. He made like four years ago, which I think is funny. That would be really awkward as an actor. Yeah. To be like then having to come out and do press for a movie you made just because you weren't famous yet, like Red Dawn. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, I did make that thing. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I did you guys watch that? <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I did not see the Red Dawn remake. I don't think anybody I, did. No, I, Red Dawn remake was Red Dawn remake was one of those that I have to confess. I got the screening alert for from like the studio, and I'm like, I got to pawn this off on someone else. So I made someone, some other writer on our site, go see it and review it. And I feel kind of bad for that, but I just couldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, God, the last time I remember thinking about there being a Red Dawn remake was like four or five years ago. It was when Call of Duty 2 came out. Modern Warfare 2. Yeah, Modern Warfare. And they had the Wolverines level, and it's like, oh, you guys are cribbing shamelessly from a really old movie. It's not really old, but it's old enough. Mm -hmm. In any case, uh, some other runners-up. The the two sort of big movies that that I had trouble leaving off my top ten and I felt bad about were This is 40, which is the new Judd Apatow film. It just came out. It stars Leslie Mann and Paul Rudd, and it's they, they're, they're the same characters they played in Knocked Up, where they were just sort of side characters. They're a married couple. They've been together a long time. They've got kids. And in This is 40, they're turning 40, and it's just sort of about things they're sort of encountering at middle age and relationship problems and family life. And it's very good. Judd Apatow is a, is a comedian who I feel has always been better at sort of enabling other comedic voices to do great work than I think his own work is great. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, like, I like 40-Year-Old Virgin. I like Knocked Up very much. I think Funny People has good moments. I don't think any of them are quite great movies, but he's, like, produced a lot of great movies, yeah. found a lot of great comedic voices. This is 40 is, to me, the movie where his style and sensibilities and ideas all come together really clearly. Like, this is, to me, the moment where he goes from being a really promising filmmaker to a great comedic filmmaker. This is just a really good movie. It's gotten very mixed reception because I think... 
I, I don't. I think a lot of people didn't necessarily want to watch a movie that sort of is about specific experiences like this in in people's lives. It's very authentic. It's very genuine. It's very autobiographical, and I think that makes some people uncomfortable. It's not based around making you like these characters as much as sort of making you examine them and understand them. And I, I think that's fascinating. I really liked it. I think it's very funny. I think it's also very poignant and very uh, honest at moments. Very powerful in parts, and it's got phenomenal acting. I think Leslie Mann, she's not going to get it. I would love to see her get a Best Actress nomination this year for that. She was very, very good in this movie, and better than she's ever been. Um, but lots of great performances. You've got Albert Brooks and John Lithgow as their, as their fathers, respectively, and it's just a very good movie. So, cool. yeah. Uh, the other one, which we talked about on this podcast before, is Zero Dark Thirty, Catherine Bigelow's film about the hunt for Osama bin Laden. And uh, it does not come out in most of the country until January. But when it comes out, I highly recommend seeing it. If you liked The Hurt Locker, this is even better. It's just this wonderful procedural about, you know, how they found Bin Laden step by step. Very journalistic. Really does not have a point of view. There's been a lot of really stupid controversy broiled up by Republican politicians who are trying to sort of defend themselves from the depiction of torture in the film. And and people saying that the the movie is defending torture because it shows that torture definitively found us Bin Laden. That's not what the film says in any way, shape, or form. The film actually, I would say, if the film has any stance, it's probably more anti-torture than it is pro-torture. But I actually think the film has no stance. I think it presents what they know to the best of their ability, and it's very well done. So mm, yeah. I think it's, it would be hard to show a torture scene and still come across as pro-torture. Yeah, I it does feel. not. It's just like that's just like whether or not you agree that you should use it to try to acquire information. It's like seeing that like portrayed in a very graphic way does not make you comfortable and be like, "Yay, torture! Yeah, Let's I mean, torture more people." The first fifteen minutes of not of uh, Zero Dark Thirty is a very in-depth showing how we tortured people and. Whether or not the, this is a completely accurate portrayal of how this specific individual was tortured or in this part of the world or whatnot, we did that. Yeah. I mean, we waterboarded people. You, you can't get away from that. Mm -hmm. And it did play into how we were searching for Osama bin Laden. Whether or not it got us bin Laden, that's a question the movie asks, and I think it is a question to ask, because that yeah. was obviously part of what America was doing at the time. Mm -hmm. And so if it makes you uncomfortable... Good. It, yeah, it, you're if, human. Yeah, and you know if it if it if it makes you go, Ooh, America, you have issues. You've watched way too much Twenty Four. Yes. Oh God. I'm sorry. This is like, it's it's so weird when I imagine the torture scenes in Zero Dark Thirty, which are so much more grounded than like the torture in Twenty Four. But it would be so funny if they'd cast Kiefer Sutherland in the part <laughs> of the torturer. Just like, tell me where Bin Laden is. Yeah, and just make it really over the top. Yeah. Disturbing. Mm -hmm. Oh, Twenty Four. Yeah. You get more dated every day. <laughs> Seriously, what a what a weird product of the times that I, show was. I know. Wonderful at times, but very odd now. It was very early 2000s. Yes. Yeah. All right, so let's get on to my main top ten list, top ten films of the year. This has been out for a while, so I'm going to kind of breeze through it. My number ten film of the year is called Not Fade Away. And this is a 1960s set drama about a teenage rock and roll band and a small hometown community in New Jersey. It's directed and written by David Chase, who was the creator of The Sopranos. And it very much shares a lot of the sort of stylistic touches that The Sopranos had, where it's not plot-driven at all. It's very much just about the characters and about their lives. And it's, you know, there's, there's very few things that are non-narrative. This is not non-narrative. It has narrative elements, obviously, things that are being worked towards and whatnot. But it's really just about examining the characters and this time period. 
And I think, you know, what I keep writing about the film is that the 1960s, and especially how rock and roll plays into the 60s, mm-hmm. that's been dramatized to death, yeah. right? I mean, you can, you can watch dozens of movies and TV shows and read dozens of books about how those elements of culture intersected, culture mm-hmm. and history. Yeah. And Not Fade Away does not reinvent that. And it would be silly for it to try to reinvent that, because you can't do it. But it can yeah. offer, I think, a really smart perspective, even if it's not a completely fresh perspective, because, again, don't know if you can do that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as I write in my list, it's just, it's got a spectacular screenplay. It's very smart, it's very layered, it has a lot to offer about sort of making you examine elements of this culture in maybe new and different ways, and it's, it's or, or ways that are a little more in-depth, and it's, it's really good in that way. It's very insightful, this portrait of 1960s middle-class culture and, and social mores and things like that feels very authentic, because this is when David Chase grew up, you feel like he's really just pulling from his own experiences. Um, the, the rock and roll featured in the film is just top-notch. It's such a great movie just to listen to. Uh, Steve Van Zandt, who is the guitarist for the E Street Band, uh, and has this great station on Sirius XM called Underground Garage. And he's a rock and roll expert, and he did uh, the music production for the movie, so he found all the music, and it's just... It's, it's some pretty deep catalog stuff that's just really great, and I, I love all the music in the movie. And then just the characterization. It's very different characterization style than I think most audiences are accustomed to, and it's why a lot of people probably are not going to respond to this movie the way I did. It does not ask you to like these characters. It never even, I think, tries to get you to like the characters in some sense. The main character, who's played by this young actor named John Magaro, who's very good, he's not a likable person. He's a dick. And he's... But I feel like that's authentic to who maybe the guy who would lead a rock and roll band in the 1960s because he has this ego would do. I mean, it's, yeah, no, the Lavas were not necessarily the nicest. No, people, he's, or he's like the straightest edge. People. Yeah, he's not a bad guy by any means, but he's also not the guy you would sort of want to date your daughter. I don't know. He's yeah, and and it does have a lot of like the, the, my favorite character in the movie is actually his girlfriend played by this really great actress named Bella Heathcote who I've seen in a couple things this year and she's been really good. She's a fascinating character for many reasons. She's sort of your touchstone to young women at the time who are part of the first generation just realizing they have opportunity now. Mm -hmm. And she's really good, but she's dating this guy, and it's kind of a creepy relationship because he's not, like, you know, like, literally abusive. Like, he doesn't hit her or anything, but he's a dick to her because he's so wrapped up in his own shit. And I feel like we don't go to the point in this movie where he would figure his own stuff out and become a better person. We're, we're examining this period in his life, and that's part of what makes it so fascinating for me, is the more you get to know this guy, you don't necessarily start to like him, but you get to empathizing with this person who is very complex and real. And there's a lot of characters like that in the movie. James Gandolfini plays his father, and he's phenomenal. This is a very sort of archetypical role of the father who doesn't understand his kid doing things different than he did it, like rock and roll and stuff. But it's just, it's very, again, authenticity is the word I keep going back to, where when you watch these two interact, it feels very genuine and touching, but also kind of sad and and in some scenes heartbreaking that they can't really get along, even though there are scenes where you see that these two people, father and son, really do love each other, but they just can't connect. And, but by the end, when his, the father kind of finally tersely accepts the son, it's such a powerful moment. It's just so great. Not Fade Away is... The more I think about this movie, the more I like it, and I think, I wonder if it would have placed higher on this list if I had the chance to see it a second time. It won't come out uh, to, like, Denver and other places until late, um, no, not late January, probably early January, but when it does, I highly recommend it. It's probably the best movie about the 60s in relation to rock and roll culture and things like that that I've ever seen. It's just phenomenal.
So. Okay, but I, I have a question. What, next year, what movie do you think is going to have the title that is from a 60s rock song? Because last year we had The Kids Are All Right, but I don't think I even knew it was had the same title as The, the Who song. Yeah, this and year we had Not Fade Away. Right. What's going to be the song next year that has well, some title that's a movie I, title? I don't know, and it's funny because you, you just mentioned The Kids Are All Right. I saw that movie. It's a good movie. It has nothing to do with that Who song. Yeah, exactly. Was, I thought it was really weird. I kept on hearing this, like, why is there a movie called The Kids Are All Right? It's like everything I hear about it sounds yeah. like it has nothing to do with The Who. Not Fade Away. Away obviously pertains perfectly, so yeah. but I just don't I don't know. Mm. Oh. Um, if someone could make a movie out of like Rolling Stones' "Parachute Woman" song, that'd be an interesting <laughs> title for a movie. <laughs> I don't know. Um, God, I, this is a mm. tough question. We'll have to wait and see. See what, what Buddy Holly song deserves to have a movie titled after it. I don't know. I mean, we did not fade away as Buddy Holly. Yeah, but obviously. yeah. Hmm. I feel like Buddy Holly needs more movies named after his music. I know. It's, it's, with the kids are all right. I'm just thinking a bunch of the Who songs. Oh, I yes. would love... There's a, the Who song called Marianne with the Shaky Hands. <laughs> that would make an awesome movie. It doesn't even have to have anything to do with the song or anything. I just right. want a movie called Marianne with the Shaky Hands. Like, if you're writing a movie about a female protagonist and you're looking for a name, name her Marianne and then take the title. Yeah, exactly. Or or the Who song Silas Stingy. That's a, that is a really weird, awesome song. Make a movie called Silas Stingy. I, I command it. Well, also last year there was Transformers: Dark of the Moon. <laughs> that's 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 a good point. Well, there, I mean that's that's an album, but a kind of almost an album. So is the next one going to be Transformers: The Wall? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I really hope so. And they <laughs> then then it's Transformers: Wish You Were Here, and now it's like a romance story or something. Because I don't know how. Like I could see Transformers: The Wall, Transformers: Animals, Beast Wars, I guess. That'd be, that'd be awesome. They should just make a Beast Wars movie next. Yep. All right, we're getting off topic. I think we're getting onto a much better topic, but okay. let's go back to your list, I guess. Number nine is Skyfall. You saw Skyfall. I did see Skyfall. You liked Skyfall. Yeah, I like Skyfall a lot. I think... I, uh... What were you going to say? No, I, I think it's a damn good movie. It is. I think it's damn good, too. I think it's one of the ten best movies I saw this year. And really? Is it number nine it is, of the ten best movies it is number, it is interesting. Num- it is number nine. And... I think what I what this boils down to is I felt that this was a year with so many good blockbusters. I think there were a lot of good ones. Some of them were a little disappointing. Like I don't know if Dark Knight Rises was everything we wanted it to be. Still good. Still a lot of good blockbuster art. And to me, Skyfall was the best of those. And part of that is just my tastes. I like James Bond a lot. And I feel like I have a connection to this character that maybe runs deeper than, say, some of the characters in The Avengers. Which I know like you probably liked more than Skyfall. Yeah, yeah. I, Avengers is my favorite action movie of the year. Right. But even that, like you, you've told me before, that's probably you know that's all. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a huge connection to the Marvel universe, so right. that was a very fulfilling experience for me personally. Yeah, and and I think Skyfall was similar for me. I think Skyfall is possibly the best James Bond movie, and that's saying something. There's a lot of good James Bond movies, even if there are a lot of shitty ones. There's a lot of good ones too, and this is a really good one. I feel like my favorite James Bond films before this were From Russia with Love, Golden Eye, and Casino Royale, and I think Skyfall does what all three of those do really well. It's got sort of, From Russia with Love has sort of introduced a darker side of James Bond, which they didn't really follow up on at the time, but it was really interesting. Uh, you know, Golden Eye was all about what is James Bond placed in the world after the Cold War, and Casino Royale was about sort of examining him as a damaged human being. I thought Casino Royale was, getting, was about getting hit in the balls with a rope. <sighs> That's all I can remember from that movie. It's like, every time I think about that movie, I think about that scene. I do, too, because, God, like, we talk about torture scenes? Yeah. That is, if you are a man, that is the most disturbing torture scene ever. Yeah. And kudos to James Bond for taking it like a man. 
Yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> it's even... It's, it is, like, the, one of the most disturbing scenes I've ever seen on film. And, I mean, I've seen some really fucked up movies. And you know what? It's even harder to read in the book Casino Royale, because they make it even more graphic, where they talk about all the, like, blood falling out from under oh, him. God. And that he, like... He has sex with Vesper Lynn the first time because he wants to check if it all works still. <laughs> <laughs> like, take it out on a trial run? Yeah. In any case, Skyfall's great. We've talked about Skyfall on this podcast before. I've reviewed it before. Not much more to say. I think it's a really smart movie. I think you can pick this movie apart, and what it's saying about James Bond and about the iconography of the character is just razor smart, and it all fits together. I think it's got a you know, great villain in, in Javier Bardem, great acting all around, and I think it goes to a really interesting place at the end, especially with, obviously, Judy Dench and um, Daniel Craig and sort of yeah. their relationship, and, and paying all that off and then moving in a new direction. It, I mean, one of the great things about Skyfall is I think it makes me really excited for where this series goes next, because they've put a lot of cool stuff in place. Yeah, so I, w- I wonder if they're going to have some other really awkward character introduction at the end of the next James Bond movie. Okay, so again, when I think of Skyfall, I think about that scene. He, unfortunately, Sean, it's not spoil it. Sean is awful in, like as awful in a good way as the scene Royale is. The scene is this one is just awful in an awful way. Okay, Sean does not like the scene where we find out that Eve is Money Penny. Yeah, I like that scene. <laughs> it's just so. It was just it was such a Robin moment from Dark Knight Rises. Like that's what I'm calling them now. They're Robin moments where it's like yeah. this really cheesy like, really forced dialogue where the character reveals their real identity that has some sort of connection to the I like, franchise. At the very least, you got to admit, this one's better than this Robin scene. Because it is better than the Robin scene. Because, I mean, they're flirting. It's it's a little more awkward off the bat than just... Or it's, it's, it's more oh, naturally... Oh, I don't know. It's like... I mean, because I have seen this line in other stuff where it's like, I we've never introduced ourselves. It's like, that's just... Who the fuck has ever said that? Like, that is the dumbest... It's like, we know our, like each other's names. You don't have to go like, we never properly introduced ourselves to each other. Oh, I am Moneypenny. I am James Bond. Thank you. Have a nice day. Like, what, who has ever said that to another human being in the history of mankind? Nobody. Okay. Other than in this movie. And on that set. Skyfall's still a great movie, and I think it's awesome that they have Ray Fiennes as the new M. Because yeah. that's just like, that's cool casting. Like, I didn't think, that, you wouldn't think they could get Ray Fine to come down mm-hmm. and, like, do M for, assumedly, a lot of pictures now. Yeah. But that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that, the, the movie was still good, despite the awful money pin scene. Okay. And that's, you know, that's an accomplishment, because <laughs> that was a pretty bad scene. Number eight for me is Looper. You never got to see this, right? Uh, no, I really wanted to, but never yeah. got around to it. I think you would really like it. I think Looper is... As smart and provocative and and just thoughtful a science fiction movie as I have seen in years, it is the antithesis to something like Prometheus, where Prometheus tries to ask some big questions and all it can do is ask and not it can't ask well. It asks very poorly. Yeah, it, well, it asks questions that are pointless to ask yes. in the first place, and then it just goes about fucking around after they ask it. Yeah, Looper is much more, I think, what science fiction can be, where you talk about issues like the future and about where technology goes and what technology can do in relation to sort of the human condition. And I think those are very interesting concepts. And Looper has a lot of things going on, but at heart, it's a film, and I, I don't want to go too much into it because I really don't want to spoil it, but it's sort of the let's kill Hitler dilemma. It's about... Sort of how is, terrible title that was for a Doctor Who episode. Yes, dilemma. No, it's sort of about the idea of of nature versus nurture. Are people born evil or do they become evil? What you know? What is sort of the path of a person's life that makes them into the person they are? 
and time travel sort of is a unique way to examine these issues. And I think the thing about Looper is I love how limited it uses time travel. This is not a time travel movie where they're jumping all around time. There's really one time travel incident that sets it all off, and then they kind of go from there. But it's, it's just a very smart plot, and it's got phenomenal writing. Ryan Johnson is just, every film he makes is better than the last, and he's a great writer, even better director. This is a visually fantastic film. And the acting by everyone, I mean, this is Joseph Gordon-Levitt's best performance. He really carries this movie. Bruce Willis, I don't I don't know if I've, if I've ever thought Bruce Willis was as good as he was here. And I love Bruce Willis, but this yeah. is a phenomenal part for him because it's playing off sort of the most familiar parts of his personal iconography as an action star. And he's just so good. But then one of the best performances in the whole movie is Emily Blunt as sort of the the mother of this child who's sort of key to the narrative. And Emily Blunt is a great actress, and she has not gotten the chance recently to sort of stretch her legs as much as I think she should. She was in some bad comedies earlier this year, and um, like Salmon Fishing in the Yemen, which I want to kill that movie because it was just fucking terrible. Not her fault, but she was in it, and that's too bad, because she's a really good actress. In any case, Looper's really good. I think it's 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 so cool to me that this movie got a wide release and had... I mean, it's not a big-budget movie, but it had the budget it had. He was able to recognize his vision, and that it was, it, it was a movie like this that asked so much of its audience and then gives back so much in turn. You don't, you don't see that a lot, in, in, especially in the realm of science fiction and films, because it's hard to get those movies made. So, yeah. just damn good. So, maybe if you ever see it, we can talk about it. Yeah, I definitely it comes out on, wish I had seen it. Yeah, it comes out on Blu-ray uh, December 31st, so pretty soon here. Number seven is your favorite film you saw this year, Sean. Yes. Lincoln. Lincoln. So, I'm just going to let you tell us why Lincoln is awesome. Lincoln is, okay, Lincoln is awesome because Lincoln. Because, <laughs> okay, How, where do we even start with this movie? Because the, it's, I, think, I think the key part of the movie that makes it, really good is something you talked about with Not Fade Away where it feels really, really authentic to yes. me. It feels really authentic to the time and to the characters, whether or not, obviously, you know, Lincoln lived a really long time ago. We can't say, you know, who he was actually like as a man. We can only make guesses based on sort of records of the time and his speeches and stuff like that. But it feels like they tried to portray Lincoln as an actual man, you know, yes. not as this sort of, like, divine figure that sort of you think of. You know, even the big issue of his voice, where everyone was like, God, Lincoln should have a really deep voice, even though we know he didn't have a really deep voice. Yeah. And they're like, no, we're not going to go with this idea that you have of Lincoln having like this really deep, baritone, I am God type voice. Yeah. We're going to go with what Lincoln was like actually as a man and show that there were significant political issues at the time, that this was not straightforward, that Lincoln made decisions that could very easily have fucked our country real hard. And it shows how easily it could have gone the other way, and that makes it a really engrossing, involving experience, and a really intelligent experience. And it makes you understand and like and respect Lincoln more than just the traditional, you know, Lincoln as Jesus portrayal would ever give you. Yeah. It's, I mean, you talk, you said when we opened this segment, it's a, it's, the Lincoln is great because of Lincoln, and that's true, because this is a, you know, it's, it's America's arguably most infamous president. How do you do him on film and do him justice in the sense of both him as a man and also kind of stripping away the legend and yeah. just doing the story and I think they really cracked it and part of it I mean the key here is the writing this is a beautiful screenplay by yeah, Tony Kushner and Tony Kushner made a great decision in doing this just the last month of Lincoln's life yeah one of the last months because then it flashes forward at the end of his death but it's the, the month where they're trying to pass the amendment and free the slaves 
but with all these other complications. And so I think the other thing the film so well understands is that to portray Lincoln, you have to portray all this stuff around him. And yeah. so it's this big ensemble cast, mm -hmm. just great actors everywhere. Every five minutes you're seeing someone new like, oh, yeah. that's Walton Goggins. I love Walton Goggins. Yeah, and all the performances and, in this movie are absolutely phenomenal. They're all great. And so there's just great people all over the place. And... Uh, I mean, my favorite sort of side part of the movie is Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, no, Tommy Lee Jones is really awesome in this movie. And it's, and, it, and it's sort of funny, because you could make a, a movie about that Thaddeus Stevens character, that, yeah. that portrayal of Thaddeus Stevens, but doing him as a sort of subplot in a movie about Lincoln really gives you more context for the history and for what Lincoln was navigating. Because yeah. if you're going to understand Lincoln, you have to understand the world around him. So it feels like what Spielberg and Kushner did here is they took off... I mean, this was a big task to do this movie, and I feel like they made, every choice they made was a really good choice. Yeah, I agree. I, I wish it had ended like five minutes before it yeah, did. Yeah, that, that's sort of the big issue with the movie, but it's not even that's, that big of an issue, but no. it's the biggest flaw I think the movie has is yeah. the way it ends. And even then, I kind of like... I really like how they go back to Lincoln's second inaugural to end the movie. That feels yeah. very proper. Mm -hmm. uh, for this movie so it's just it's really great Daniel Day-Lewis you cannot overstate how good his work is here this is mm -hmm. not your standard historical impression this is a performance he's playing a character and he's yeah. playing it really well yeah it is really a lot of times in these sort of biopics you get them performing sort of a caricature yeah especially if it's, yeah, I imagine it's a Harder to do with Lincoln just because, you know, obviously we don't have any, like, film recordings of Lincoln as a person. Right. But, you know, you'll tend to find people that's just like they're trying to do an impersonation of, like, Alfred Hitchcock or something. I didn't see the Hitchcock movie, but that's kind of like the style that the acting tends to be. And, yeah, you're exactly like Daniel, Daniel Day-Lewis plays Lincoln as a character. Yeah. And that's key to how this movie works. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, again, when he just sits down and starts talking... To another character or to the camera or whatever. I'm riveted. The The best scene in the movie to me is his Euclidean political reasoning. Yeah. When he's trying to write the telegram and you get this sense he doesn't even know what choice he's going to make but he sort of reasons through it with his intelligence. Yeah. And his knowledge of the classic literature mm -hmm. and comes out with you know equal to equal to equal has to be equal in all cases. Yeah. And it's, just, it's like so basic but so such a poignant moment. Mm -hmm. So great movie. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. All right, so number six on my top ten list is Silver Linings Playbook. This is the uh, David O. Russell's film about psychological, psychological damage and emotional healing sort of within a romantic comedy-drama framework. It's, it's, it's sounded like five different movies and that it, you just, like, rattled off. And I think that's the key to this movie's success is it, tr it attempts to do a lot of things and it does them all really, really well. And it's a little different than anything you've seen before, even as it plays with formula of certain things you're familiar with in film, in terms of sort of how relationships develop in film and stuff. But it's, it's again, it's just it's hard to describe. We go back to this word authenticity. I think that's what I liked in movies this year. There was a lot of good authentic material. And so Bradley Cooper in this film, he's the main character, he plays this man who has just gotten out of a mental institution. He was there for eight months because he's, he was undiagnosed bipolar, this all came out in an incident where he found his wife cheating on him with another man, beat the man half to death, he had to go to a mental institution. He's just been released to the custody of his parents, played by Jackie Weaver and Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro has not been this good in since Heat. I mean, I think that's how far you have to go back to have yeah. a good Robert De Niro performance, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and this is this is Robert De Niro at his very best. This is just beautiful work from him. And and Bradley Cooper is great, illustrating this man trying to get his life back on track. He's got this plan. He wants to get back with his ex-wife. He wants to become a better person. And he meets this woman, played by Jennifer Lawrence, who was sort of the breakout actress of this year. So many good performances by Jennifer Lawrence. And 
she's got emotional issues of her own. She's also probably got some psychological things she's working through. Her husband just died. Uh, they had not been married very long. He was a police officer. He died. And sort of they become friends, and they're trying to both sort of help each other out, and they wind up making this pact where if she brings a letter to his ex-wife, because there's a restraining order, he can't just communicate with her, then he will help her in this dance competition. And the whole movie winds up being built around sort of them rehearsing for this couple's dance competition they're going to do at the end. And that, to me, defines what this movie does well, is the minutia of building the climax of a film around an amateur dance competition sounds stupid, but when you watch it and you get to that moment, you care about these characters so much that because they care about it, you suddenly care about this. Yeah. And that moment is one of the best movie moments I've ever seen with a crowd. When they do their dance, and it's awful. They're not good. And like It's like, that's the thing. But because they're putting all their effort into it, you love it, and you can feel the energy of the crowd you're watching the movie with being so happy for these people. And all they get at the end of the movie is a 5 out of 10 on their score. But that's enough for... It's a long story, but Bradley Cooper's father has a bet riding on them that if they get a 5 out of 10, he gets a lot of money from this like guy he's always betting with. And it's just so when they get their 5, basically they've lost the competition. Everyone in the theater stood up and cheered. And it was just so great because that it just earns it so well. And the romance between Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence, so earned. There's just this atmosphere to this movie of raw intimacy and authenticity where... A lot of it does not feel scripted. It's just sort of these very instinctual aesthetics capturing these actors, throwing words back and forth that just feel like they're just stemming from the actors. They weren't written down. I don't know if they were written down or not, but it's just really immediate and instinctual, and it just works so well, and it's such a great movie. And if anything, the more time you spend with it, the better it gets. It it got this high on my list because I watched it a second time, and I just loved it more and more the second time I watched it because it's such a rich world David O. Russell has illustrated here and such rich characters, and it's such a satisfying film, and I can't recommend it highly enough. So, really good movie. So Sean has not seen it. Makes you want to get into an amateur dance competition? No, I'd be terrible. Well, but they, you said that they were terrible, but if, that it didn't, didn't matter. If Jennifer Lawrence came up to me and like asked me to be in an amateur dance competition with her, of course I would. But no pretty women have asked me to be in an amateur dance competition with them. That's so. unfortunate. Yeah, it is. So well. Hopefully someday. Hopefully someday. You can dance to the Pokemon Christmas album. <laughs> <laughs> that would be, that'd be awesome. That would be yeah. worth it. How would we like illustrate the Brock rap? I th- I think you should like like be able to do a really good impersonation of the Brock dub voice and just freestyle a Brock rap in place of nice. the actual Brock rap in place. <laughs> that it would automatically be better than the actual Brock rap. I so. would. It would. I think I have a bigger vocabulary than yeah. <laughs> All right. Rhyme Brock with rock. It's the most creative rhyme possible. Brock rock go into all the rock Pokemon. Yeah. We're gonna rock out with Onyx. Geodude. Yep. Anyways. Anyways. Let's get back to the list. For number five, we're going in a completely different direction than, like, deep psychological damage and discussions of slavery and all these things. This is The Secret World of Arietti. Karigurashi no Arietti. Which does not... That translates just into The Borrower Arietti. I don't get why they changed the title in America. But whatever. This is the new film by Studio Ghibli. It's actually kind of old. It's from 2010. Didn't come out here until 2012, so it qualifies for the list. um, Because theatrical release in 2012. But... Damn, I mean, I it's well-established. I love Studio Ghibli. I love the works of Hayao Miyazaki and the other artists there. But this is just one of my favorite movies they've ever done. It's a really just masterful little film. And it is a little film. It's very focused, and it's very small and intimate, and it's just 
all takes place around this house and this little estate in Japan, and it feels kind of big because the main character is a borrower. She's small. She's a couple inches high, and so everything's... You see it from a different perspective, and it's just... This is basically Ferngully, is what I'm getting from this? Well, okay. in Japan. The Borrowers predates Ferngully by, like, a century. It's an old book. So? Okay. It's not Ferngully at all. Okay. Because That's humans are not portrayed as evil. Too bad. <laughs> I was hoping this may be the Japanese Avatar. Okay. No, this is so much better than Avatar. This is a great little movie. Um, Hayao Miyazaki wrote the script. Hiromasa Yonobayashi, who's a first-time director, did the directing on the movie. Um, Very distinctive artistic voice. It's uh, another Studio Ghibli movie that's very in touch with nature, but I think the way it draws uh, scenes of nature and flowers in the sky is a little different than anything they've ever done. I love the character models are all sort of rendered on simplicity, so movement can be more finely animated, and there's a lot of just just really good... I mean, the animation in this movie is mind-blowing. It's so great, and it's the latest in the recent Ghibli movies that do not use computers at all. It's all hand-drawn, all hand-colored. You see nothing like that in America, and it's so much nicer than anything animated I watched this year, Mm because there's nothing digital about it. It's just... It's all hand-done. But the story is where it shines... It's a, you know, what I wrote in my little blurb here is that Miyazaki and Yonabayashi have taken the bare essentials of the classic novel, The Borrowers, and reconstituted them for a very tender, poignant story about sort of the nature of isolation and the resilience of the human spirit. That's very much what this film is about. It's got a, a lot of introspective material, just mesmerizing character work, and a really nice core relationship where... You know, again, if an American studio had made this, you'd have this really weird romance between the two-foot, like, two-inch-tall girl and the, like, human teenager. Yeah. That's not what this is about. This is about two people who are... It's platonic love. It's about people who fill a void the other has. And it's just, man, when it... It builds so subtly, but when you get to the final scenes and they have to say goodbye forever, fuck if I didn't just bawl my eyes out the first time I saw this movie. And I'm fine admitting that. Cause this it's is like the end of Air Bud. What the fuck are you talking about? It's like the end of Airbud, where he has to, like the dog has to leave because he can't keep the dog anymore. Okay, it's exactly like that. I imagine I haven't actually seen the movie. Okay, <laughs> come on, man. I can't Airbud, the American classic about a dog who plays fucking basketball. I have not thought of Airbud in years. I think about Airbud every second of my life. <laughs> really? No. Okay. That was I was that was an example of hyperbole. Okay. Marietti, it's available on DVD and Blu-ray. Get it, it's good. Airbud probably is also. Okay, I'm sure. Get it, it, it might. I have I have not seen Airbud since I was like eight years old. It might be okay, actually. I don't know. Is there any chance Airbud's on Blu-ray? Have it has done to that? be. Come oh, okay. on, it's, it's Airbud. Okay, Airbud is. We are taking a detour here for a second. Airbud is not on Blu-ray. Interesting. That is a, that is a fucking travesty. Maybe they're waiting until they have they can get all the sequels like, like do a box set <laughs> like the twentieth anniversary of Airbud. Yes, which I, that might have that actually might, passed. Yeah, it probably no, it probably actually has. We'll look it up. We're taking another detour. Yes, Airbud. Okay, Airbud came out ninety seven, so we're oh, done no, there. Airbud, that's I thought Airbud was older than that for some reason. It's the fifteenth anniversary this year. Why no Blu ray release? Yeah, exactly. Like Theatrical big... release, three D conversion. <laughs> yeah, just like. The whole, the whole shebang, you know, of like, you know, the huge behind the scenes, you know, basically the Lord of the Rings extended box set, but for Airbud is what we need now. There are 11, 12 Airbud movies. That's 
That's kind of horrifying. There are five in the main Air Bud series. Then there are six Air Buddy movies. Then there are two Santa Paws movies. <laughs> so, we, I think... I don't think we should go any further down this rabbit hole, my friend. I think I think we've stepped into a world we don't want to step into. Number four on my top ten yeah, list. Let's just ignore that. Number four on my top ten list is Stephen Chbosky's *The Perks of Being a Wallflower*. Oh man, I love this movie, and I—it's hard to even talk about it because it is just so well done. I and I hate to break out this word over and over and over again, but authenticity—that is where this movie excels. I think. Most movies made about high schoolers and teenage life and adolescence are pretty shitty. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, okay. basically. Because I think a lot of them either are inexplicably made for a younger audience where they can't depict what the, the like the things that actually happens in high school, like the sad yeah. things and the sexual things, all sorts of things that happen in high school, uh, or they're made for teenagers, but they just really gloss over all the things that are kind of messy, or they portray the messy stuff in a very soap opera fashion. There's just all these sort of missteps. Mm -hmm. And The Perks of Being a Wallflower, which is based on a, a beloved novel from the late 90s that the director actually wrote, so he's directing his own book, um, it's, it's just, again, it's very authentic. It's not typical at all. It's what I said about it is it's a very deeply felt movie. It's a highly personal chronicle about identity and desire. And it doesn't follow the standard talking points at all. It's about a, it's a very serious discussion of emotional issues that happen during adolescence. And it's so well observed, and it's so layered with just, just this rich, nuanced meaning. And there's just all sorts of things they're talking about. And it really is rich in the way a great novel is. And there's so many things you can talk about when you watch this movie and you pick it apart. Um, but what makes this so great for me is the, the core cast of Logan Lerman, Ezra Miller, and Emma Watson... Just, they're all sensational. It's just, they're so good at capturing the raw and fluid nature of adolescence. And just three of the best performances I've seen this or any other year. It's like, I, teenage acting like that is really hard to come by. And it's so good. Logan Lerman in particular is great. But man, Ezra Miller, who's playing this um, uh, young, uh, he's, he's basically just come out as gay, I guess. And I don't know if he's, I guess he hadn't necessarily come out totally just to his friends because this is sort of the mid-90s where that was not a thing that was common. So it's, yeah. it's positioned at a time where it's a much tougher issue. And I think that's, mm -hmm. it's a good time to position that out and talk about that because I think it makes you think more about our time period and how we cover those issues too. But he's just really great in that part. And Emma Watson, who was always, I think, the best of the young actors in Harry Potter, um, just proving she's a really great actress in this movie, playing a character who's nothing like Hermione Granger, and is just very, very good. And the movie deals with some very heavy stuff, especially in its last half hour, and it does it just all with this sort of deft hand that is very sensitive, but really, really insightful. And it's a great, great movie. Can't recommend it highly enough. It's not playing in theaters now. Well, it may, it may be still in some theaters. It's, it came out in, like, September, so I don't know. Mm. But it comes out on DVD and Blu-ray in February... Highly recommend it. Um, it's just, you know, I, I, when I see a movie that I feel like gets parts of my own life, like, like when I see parts of this that make me think about my own high school life in a very authentic way, that's a success because I don't think I've ever seen that before in this context. So, yeah. really good movie. Uh, number three is The Gray. This is Joe Carnahan. another Liam Neeson in high school about, you know, his sort of what he has to go through being a high schooler. No, no. This is this was. is this is Liam Neeson is a depressed, suicidal man who is in a plane crash on his way to Anchorage, Alaska, 
and he's in the middle of the Alaskan tundra with like six or seven other guys, and they're surrounded by packs of massive Alaskan wolves. So I was pretty close then. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair enough. Yeah, but when he's in high school. The Gray. Yeah. All right. So, man, I, I the Gray. It, it's kind of sad to me that the Gray came out in January and no one saw it, and no one's really talking about it at the end of the year now because it's absolutely a masterpiece and one of the best movies. I've seen this year. It's it's one of the better movies I've ever seen. It's an amazing film. I mean, it's just a great survival story where you've got, you know, it's just a top-notch survival story with a lot of great, uh, you know, sort of, I don't want to say action scenes because it's not an action movie, but there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of moments of just the process of how you survive in this scenario. And really well done there with great acting and great cinematography and great production design. Although I don't even know how much production design there was because I think they actually filmed this in the middle of the Alaskan tundra. And I wonder how many of the people on set got frostbite. Because it looks very cold. In any case, it's, it's just, it works great on that level, but it's a very deep, thoughtful story and very uncompromising in that it's a pretty dark thing they're delving into. They're de- delving into death itself and they're delving into the idea of sort of the world being a, a dark place where we are sort of ultimately alone. Uh, Sean, we are both atheists at WGTC Radio. Yes, yes, is that we are. Safe to say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think it's safe to say. Yeah, and I think the gray is about that. I think it's about the people in this scenario. Some of them, you know, very much want to pray to God and, and try to figure out, you know, where is God and all this. And Liam Neeson just wants to beat the shit out of some wolves. Yeah. No, no, Liam Neeson. There's no fighting wolves in this movie. I mean, there's something at the end like that, and I don't want to spoil it, but that's not the movie was so misadvertised. But Liam Neeson is a character who's very skeptical, who is sort of the kind of figure who's always wanted to believe in God, but can't because he's had no evidence that God has ever been there for him. And the the number one reason the gray hits me as hard as it does is this one scene near the end where he's lost absolutely everything. He's all on his own. He's the, He's getting deeper and deeper into the wolf pack. He doesn't know what to do, and he just looks up at the sky and is shouting at God and saying... Or, or, you know, he's not literally shouting at God, but he's, that's kind of what he's talking about. He's saying, you know, fuck faith. Earn it. Prove you're there. If, if you are actually there, I need you. I need you now. And, I, I like, and, and you have to earn this. And there's no answer. Hmm. And I think a movie getting into that feeling, that I think for a lot of people who don't believe in God, that's the moment you have, and then there's no answer, where it's like, oh, I was stupid to do that. And American movies don't usually address that, do they, Sean? Yeah, no, not really. We're I pretty think, phobic of addressing those issues. Yeah, it is sort of a pretty tight-lipped thing in America because, you know, there's, we have a lot of religious issues in America right yeah. now, I think. And, and with all the religion being mixed with politics makes it sort of a minefield. Yeah, and I think the gray to talk about those things in such a powerful way uh, is great. But then also kind of to end on a, a bit of an uplifting note where... It's, where he it's, turns it to a werewolf. No, it's not just about sort of the bleakness of a world where, you know, you sort of just realized... It's not about a world where you're all on your own. It's a world where you've... you got some motherfucking wolves with you. It's, it's, I think the, the last message of the movie is if, if Otway, the main character, feels isolated and alone and just abandoned, he at least has himself and he has this life. And if that's all he has, he's going to fight for it. And the whole movie is about him getting to that place where he just realizes he has himself, and ultimately that's what his life boils down to, and he's not going to give it up. He's going to fight for it, because if he has that, it's his to fight for. And it's, man, it's a powerful movie, and the way it gets into those issues. So I really love it. It's just great acting and characterization all around. 
great tension. It is a phenomenal movie. And the fact that it's at number three kind of boggles my mind because... Because you don't remember what you put at two and one? No, just because it's that, that there were better movies than that this year. That's That means it was a good year for movies, that's all. Hmm. So, there you go. Number Liam Neeson two is a werewolf in high yes. school. Number two, it's basically Teen Wolf, but with Liam Neeson is what I just got from that. I don't know where you're getting this from, Sean. I don't know. All right, number two is Cloud Atlas. This is the Wachowski brothers and Tom Tyquer's adaptation of the uh, book by somebody. I forget the author's name now. David Mitchell, I think. Huh. Um, but Cloud Atlas, if you haven't seen it, and you probably haven't because it made no money, <laughs> which is sad to me because I love this movie. Um, Cloud Atlas is. Uh, a much more optimistic movie than The Grey. It's set in six different time periods, six different sets of characters, but the same set of actors generally in, in different makeup and prosthetics playing sort of the same souls reincarnated, or however you want to interpret it, across the ages. Um, and it's about how sort of actions of one lifetime impact people in other times and back and forth. It's, it's interesting that I put this right next to The Grey, because while I do not believe in God, I think a lot of the things Cloud Atlas talks about, not necessarily reincarnation, which I think you, you don't have to watch Cloud Atlas and read it as a movie about reincarnation, because I don't think it's literally meant to be taken that way, um, where the movie is espousing, obviously when we die, we come back as, you know... We, Tom Hanks. We change our ethnicity and come back in the year 2400. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, 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 that's not, not what reincarnation's about. Yeah. No. You don't even have to necessarily reincarnate as the same gender. No, and I, it's making different points about identity and how I, identity and, and, and meaning interacts through time and things like that. But anyway, what I was saying is I think this movie does have... I think it examines the world in a way that's really interesting. It's much more closer to sort of how I believe, you know, different elements of the world. And I think it examines a lot of important just basic human concepts about love and life and death and friendship and that... You know, I don't think this is a movie that necessarily says, you know, when we die, we go to an afterlife or we reincarnate or, you know, whatever. Or we become I Tom Hanks. Yeah, I think in some ways it does kind of, there's, there's some elements where death is final in this film, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be meaningless. You can, you leave an impact and all these other things that happen for the characters. And, and it's just, it's an, it's really just an intensely personal film even as it has this broad scope, and it works in so many ways. And I'm talking about sort of the meaning of it, but I also, I just have to say, Cloud Atlas is a wildly entertaining movie, because it's got all these great characters and all these great stories, and each story is also sort of a commentary on different elements of genre, and different kinds of genres, and different kinds of storytelling, but they're all intersecting, and it's a very smart deconstruction of how we tell stories, and how we form stories, and how we form genre, and all of the individual stories are great. You could cut them all into their own movie, and they'd be good movies on their own. But they're great movies together. So it just, it really works. It's just such a great fucking movie. And I, I can completely see why a lot of critics and audiences did not accept it. Because I think you can't watch this movie and, and be sarcastic and flippant in the way a lot of critics are about movies they see. or go. I think you can't go in cynical to this movie and sit down cynically and, and kind of watch a movie that is about optimism in many ways. Yeah, that's and, not going to work for me. Okay. I can't, I I can't you, not be cynical. All right. I don't think you it, like... It is woven into the fabric of my being. Yeah, I don't think you like Cloud Atlas, but I, I love it to death. This was the first movie I saw after my father passed away in October, and just to say it was a healing experience for you know what had just happened is an understatement. It's, it's a, just a profound work of art. I really, really love it. And it was... Sort of without question, my number one film of the year, until I saw a very... Prometheus. <laughs> Sean. Then when you saw Prometheus, you're like, this is the movie. This is the best movie that has been made of all time, right? 
Prometheus is number five on my worst films of 2012 list. Oh, oh I got that. I got that backwards then. I'm yeah. sorry. Number one is Django Unchained, the new film from Quentin Tarantino, which I shouldn't talk about too much because it's not out yet. Don't want to spoil anything, but because yeah, I want to see it. Yeah. And it's. I think it's funny that I followed Cloud Atlas with Django Unchained. She got asked too much. Yeah, they like seem like completely different movies. <laughs> they are, but man, I look. Quentin Tarantino is my favorite American filmmaker. I just I love the guy's movies. They just speak to me on sort of an instinctual level. I really love his films, and I knew Django Unchained was my favorite film of 2012 pretty much from the opening credits, because when a guy like Tarantino can make up the opening credits of a movie so much fun, that's, that's amazing, because opening credits shouldn't be that much fun. But this movie, just from the credits onwards, it's fun, but then it's also serious and dark and thoughtful and very, very meaningful in ways I don't think Tarantino's movies have ever risen to. I think part of it is he's dealing with more serious subject matter than he ever has before, you, you can't really fuck around with slavery too much. Yeah. But the thing is, a lot of times we do whitewash slavery in our depictions of it in film and TV and literature and all these things. And this is not a movie about whitewashing at all. It's very, it's one of the most brutal depictions of slavery I've ever seen. It just also happens to be a movie that has a cathartic revenge element to it. And it's a movie that discusses sort of how we build iconography and legacy and mythology off the backs of people we just ignored and left out of historical accounts. And, I mean, not left out of historical accounts altogether. I mean, obviously slavery is a big yeah. issue, but not really getting into what was this like for people. Mm -hmm. how, did, how did the selling of human flesh enable people to create the legacies of the American West and all these ideas? And Django Unchained tackles all of that, and it tackles it very well. And the middle act, the second act, is as serious uh, a stretch of film I think Tarantino has ever done. I mean... There's a lot of of Django Unchained that is affectless, uh, you know, and a lot of Tarantino films are obviously highly stylized, and this one is too. But there's parts that it's just done straight, and it's done straight for maximum impact, so that when it becomes more stylized again at the end, it can be really satisfying in a in a thoughtful way and in a meaningful way. And it's just a great movie. Wonderful performances all around. This is the best Jamie Foxx has ever been. He's amazing in this movie. Christoph Waltz, who was born to read Tarantino dialogue, is wonderful as Dr. King Schultz, and Leonardo DiCaprio has... It's, it's a, a bitchin' mustache. He does. He looks cool in this movie, but he's an asshole, and he's yeah. the most despicable human being Tarantino has ever written. And it's kind of funny to me, I guess Leonardo DiCaprio had never really played a villain before this, and I never think of that. Yeah, that's... He hasn't, has he? But doesn't he seem like the kind of guy who should sometimes? Like, yeah, he, especially like DiCaprio now. Yeah. Yeah. He seems Because, like, like, you take his performance in The Departed, if you reoriented that a little bit, it's a bad guy performance. Yeah. But he's a good guy in that movie, so... It's really weird how I feel like Leonardo DiCaprio has not only played villains, but played villains, like, multiple times, but yeah. when you think about it, he hasn't. That's no. strange. So it's it's genius to put him in this movie. Yeah. And he's a bitchin' mustache. Yeah, and he's really good uh, as Calvin Candy, and... The other thing I should say about Django Unchained is I, uh, they put the script out on their... Uh, Weinstein Company put Tarantino's original script for the film out on their awards website. And I read it the other day just for fun because Tarantino's scripts can be kind of fun to read. Like I love on the first page, he's describing what a spaghetti western flashback is and then every time Django has a flashback, he just types in big bold letters, spaghetti western flashback. <laughs> it's, just, it's full of character and it's funny. But Tarantino is such a smart filmmaker. When I read this script, every single change he made to it was for the better. 
every single alteration from this script improved the movie, and that just shows me how meticulous a filmmaker he is. Mm-hmm. And it's so well done. Uh, I have the soundtrack now. The soundtrack is... I love listening to that thing. There's such good music in this movie. There is an original Ennio Morricone piece in it, too. And that's badass! Awesome. Yes. That's, that's fucking badass. Yeah. And it's love a little... Morricone. Oh, yeah. And it's a little different than some other Morricone music I've heard. But it's so good. You can tell it's him, but it's just a little different. And it's, it's just awesome. And it's used in a really great part of the movie. But uh, there's a lot of original music in it, actually, from different artists. And it's all really good. So, man, Django Unchained is, uh, is wonderful, I think... Sean, for instance, I think you'll respond to it better than you have to some of Tarantino's movies because it's a lot more straightforward. It's just, the story is just told. You don't have the chapter breaks or multiple sets of characters. It's very straight through. And I know you, for instance, had some issues in Inglorious Bastards. You thought it was a good movie, but you... But, yeah, it it had sort of two plots and didn't know what... I felt like the movie didn't know what it wanted to do with, like, its direction it was going in. It just, like, felt like it was, like, two different movies that I was watching. Okay. And I don't necessarily feel that way, but I understand how you feel that way. And Django, I don't think you could take that out of it because it's, again, very focused. So even though it's, it's long, it's almost three hours long. It's, like, two hours, 40 minutes. It doesn't feel like that. Not to me at all. I know some people thought it was a little too long, but... I think, it, I think it earns its length. I mean, for one, you go into a Tarantino movie, you expect it to be kind of long. And yeah. I think that's okay, because his style... He paces movies well. Mm-hmm. And, and I, even, like, just looking at the... Just the little I know about the plot from the trailer seemed like it would have to be a oh, long yeah. movie. Well, because so. the first act alone, they have to get through a lot before they can kind of get to the next part of the story. Yeah, this, yeah, it looked like it was going to be a long movie, just yeah. based on the trailer, so... And it's, it's damn good. So, best movie I saw this year. Love it. Sure, and it's not better than sure you don't want to put Prometheus as number one. You're, you're Fuck you, Sean. positive. Do we? Do we? Okay, we're not going to go through my top ten worst films of 2012. Okay, but do we want to bash Prometheus one more time as the worst film that we talked about on this podcast? Prometheus is a flaming piece of shit. It is, and people don't quite understand when like people will say, "Oh, it's disappointing," but it's not bad. Sean, explain no, to these people why they're wrong. It's okay. It's not disappointing. It's not bad. It is a flaming piece of shit. It is a terrible fucking movie. It's a movie that doesn't even know what the fuck it's about, which is an astounding accomplishment, right? It's astounding, yeah. It doesn't... It's a movie that's wrong. It is a movie that is simply fucking wrong. And you don't even need to go farther than that to just call it a bad movie because it's wrong. Fuck it. I'm just going to leave it at that. The movie's wrong. It's just wrong. Done. Well, let's talk about some stuff that's right. Let's talk about yeah. your... So, I did not play a lot of video games this year. I was just busy with some other stuff, and it's... I, I so feel obviously... Like, I mean, you've watched a lot yeah, of movies this year. Yeah. Not a lot of time to play video games. Right. I, I, I feel kind of bad, because there's... Uh, just looking at your list of great yeah. games, I want to play all of those. Yeah, even all the games I've played, I feel bad, because I feel like, there's a shit ton more games that I really wish I could have played this year. Yeah, gaming gets better every year, and that's really encouraging. Yeah. And I, I like that. And gaming gets better in different ways. I mean, this was a year that had, I know, a lot of good indie titles and downloadable yeah, yeah, content. Yeah, definitely. So, Sean has made a list of his top five, sort of, games yeah, of the we'll year. we'll get to that when we get to that. Yeah. But. but, Sean, you take it away. This is your section. We're going to talk about games. Okay. So, yeah, first of all, I should just sort of preface this with saying, obviously, playing video games is a very expensive and time-consuming hobby, and so there were a lot of games this year that I wanted to play but couldn't for various reasons. I think the, the biggest one that I wish I had played just for sort of list-making purposes and one that's gotten a lot of critical acclaim that... I want to sort of understand, because from what I know of it, it doesn't seem like something that would be that good, but everyone's loving it, it's getting a bunch of Game of the Year awards, is the PlayStation Network exclusive Journey, which I wasn't able to play because I don't have a PS3, so sort of 
impeded my progress in enjoying that title. But, you know, that was sort of... Sort of defined part of this year of gaming to me is the fact that Journey is winning all of these Game of the Year awards, because for those of you who don't know, Journey is a downloadable title for the PlayStation 3 that, as far as I can tell, is basically a walking simulator with some interesting co-op ideas in it, but it's got a really... It's got really good music. I've listened to some of the tracks because everyone said the music was great, and I listened to some of it. It's got kick-ass music. It's got a really, really well-done visual style and a really well-realized aesthetic, and sort of feels like a lot of the gaming press is appreciating sort of that type of gaming more and more, where they're not necessarily flocking to the like the Call of Duty title that comes out every year and saying, like, this is the best thing ever. They're not necessarily flocking to the big-budget titles. It feels like they're looking at, you know, there are a lot of smaller games that came out this year, like The Walking Dead is another one that's on my list that I'll talk about that's getting a lot of critical acclaim that is not a game that you would expect to get critical acclaim. And But, you know, there are also a lot of really awesome AAA budget games that came out this year that I also did not get to play, like Sleeping Dogs, Darksiders 2, uh, Resident Evil 6, which probably wouldn't have been on the list, but didn't play it. Assassin's Creed 3. But Resident Evil's always worth a look. Yeah, Resident Evil. And particularly just because, you know, Resident Evil as a franchise is just doing so many weird things. Like, Resident Evil, it's, it's one of the few franchises that is, like, at least has the balls to try to do something different with its formula. Oh, yeah. I mean, it completely can... remade itself with Resident Evil 4, and it seems like it kind of did that again with 6. Yeah, Resident Evil is like the anti-Call of Duty. You don't get to, like, criticize it for being the same. It's... Yeah, because it's like, I mean, it's to the point where, like, it's got, like, it's polarized the, its fan base so many times that it's like, you still have these, like, Resident Evil 1, like, faithful diehards that are, like, still buying the games. They're like, I don't even like, like, this isn't even a survival horror game anymore. They Like, that genre is basically dead. And they're like, if I keep on buying the fucking games and then I complain about them online, I read their complaints. It's like, asshole, just stop buying the fucking games. You, you're not going to like them. They're not survival horror. But <laughs> anyways, yeah, I mean, one of the gaming experiences I did have this year was I bought Resident Evil 4, the HD re- release on Xbox Live Arcade, which Resident Evil 4 is a damn good game. Oh, yeah. And I had never played it before. That was my first time I played it. And it is... It is, it is a game that still surprisingly holds up. Not a lot of old games hold up the way that Resident Evil 4 does, but yeah. not here to talk about Resident Evil 4. We're here to talk about the games that I... the newer games I played this year, mostly. And <laughs> so I'm going to start with uh, some of the... I made a top five, mostly, list. But I'm going to start with some of the games that didn't quite make it on there, but are still damn good games in their own right. The first one is XCOM Enemy Unknown, which is a sort of... it's a turn-based strategy game that's... Uh, it's a sort of a remake, in a sense, of the XCOM game that came out in the, I want to say, early 90s that I never played on the PC, and it is a fucking brutal game, XCOM, because it's basically you, it's, aliens have invaded the Earth, and you are commanding this squad of, basically, Marines, and you're trying to defeat the aliens, and that's sort of the battle section of the game, is this, it's very kind of like chess, it's, you have uh, turns, you have different enemy cl- or different unit classes and stuff like that, and you have to, you know, use your wits to outsmart the enemies, outflank them, use your uh, unit's abilities to the best of your advantage, and take out the enemies, and it's a very, very fun combat system, and very addictive, and it also has this other half of sort of resource management, where in between missions, you go back to your base, and you can research new technologies, you can, you know, you can, uh, they could conduct autopsies or interrogations on aliens that you've captured alive and find out new information that way, and sort of you're able to navigate these tech trees. And what makes XCOM so much fun is that it is such a brutal game. Particularly when you get later in, there are missions where you will just 
you know, you're, I think you can have a maximum of six squad members on a mission. And there'll be missions where you just run out there and, you know, your sniper ends up running into a pack of, like, six mutons who are, like, these hulking behemoth aliens with big-ass plasma rifles. And you're like, every one of these fuckers, is, all of my guys are dead. And, and your characters, when they die, they are dead, and you have to hire new recruits, you have to train them up, level them up, and it is fucking brutal. And everything about the game is a game about making trade-offs, because it's sort of, you always have, like, five different things you could do, and all five of those things are legitimate, intelligent decisions that you could make. And so you're always sitting there being like, okay, I could research plasma rifles and that'll give me more, more offensive capability, but, oh, shit, I need to protect my satellite so I can get more money. It's like, oh, fuck, I also need more armor. It's like, oh, shit, I need to buy the psionic lab so I can get the higher level upgrades. Or if you're in a mission, it's like, okay, I could have my sniper try to take out that guy, but then this guy over here will end up killing my medic, and there's always these plethora of decisions to be made. It is a brutal, hardcore game that is really addictive, but it is also a game that has a shit ton of glitches, and that's sort of its biggest flaw, is that this is a glitchy-ass fucking game. The game basically crashed on me, and I have, I'm playing it on the Xbox 360. It's also available on the PS3 and uh, PC, and the game crashed on me three separate times. There's one time where the game just wouldn't let me make a turn, and so my units were just sitting there, and I was like, well... I guess I have to quit up to the main screen. And there's just been, you know, tons of little dumb little glitches where, you know, they'll shoot my... The enemies will suddenly be able to shoot through a wall, even though line of sight clearly would not allow you to, and my unit couldn't, and stuff like that. And it's sort of unfortunate that the game's really held back by its technical flaws. But if it wasn't, it probably would have been on my top five games of the year list. But Is it you know, a downloadable game? Uh, no, it's a okay. full, like, 60... I mean, it's, it's a long game. It's like All 30 right. hours long. It's a full $60... I mean, it might be a little cheaper now because it came out. I uh, just didn't see it in your pile in summer. There, so, uh, yeah, uh, it's over there. Okay. But yeah, cool. It's a damn good game. I would highly recommend playing it, especially you know turn-based strategy games are not games you get of a lot nowadays. Yeah, and so you know if you're if you're looking for something like that, and if you're someone who you are okay with just having your entire squad of people just get decimated. Although I should say, there's one thing. My favorite thing about this fucking game is that. My guy, like, there, you have a tutorial mission at the beginning of the game where basically it's your first combat mission and all of your squad members except for one guy automatically die. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. And so you're left with this one dude and that one guy survived till the end of the game and there's something... And that's... I don't know how the fuck he did because I put him on, like, most of my missions. He has, like, 50 missions that he's been on, you can see. And one of the best things is I think when you get to, like... Uh, I forget, I think it's when you get to, like, the major rank or something like that, the game auto-assigns your character of, like, that, that soldier a nickname, and my one guy who survived the entire fucking alien campaign, which is just amazing, because nobody, like, nobody else even got close to, like, living past, like, 12 missions, his uh, nickname was Papa Bear. And I love that. He was like, and he was a heavy, so he's like this big ass dude, this big ass Italian dude with like a giant Gatling gun, and his name was Papa Bear. That is the perfect person to be named Papa Bear. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's yeah. Like he just happened to be named Papa Bear, and he was—he's the most Papa Bear is the most badass human that ever existed because he like like fucking fought off the alien invasion. So good for him. Yeah, Papa Bear, XCOM Enemy Unknown. I highly recommend it. It's a damn good title. Another game I played this year that is also a strategy game is FTL, which stands for Faster Than Light, which was a indie game that came out in the, I believe, in the summer. 
that's it's pretty cheap. You can probably get it for like ten bucks or wait for it to be on a Steam sale. Uh, I believe you can get it for both Mac and PC. Huh. And it's uh, it's basically a roguelike, which if you don't know, it's sort of a really niche genre. It's basically each time you play the game, you play until you die, and each playthrough, if you like, actually manage to win a playthrough, the playthrough is only about an hour long. But it's another brutal fucking game where you are going to die, and you're going to die a lot. And but nothing carries over between each playthrough, so it's a really good game for like really short gaming sessions where it's like I'll just play FTL for like 30 minutes and I'll I know I'm just going to die eventually so I'll just give it a shot and see how far I get but basically the game is sort of a spaceship simulator where you get a spaceship and you can unlock different configurations for your spaceship and you have your crew and it's very much like sort of playing like playing Star Trek in a way where it's like okay I'm going to try to upgrade my shields and put like you know this dude in the the shield room and this guy in the engine room and I'm gonna like try to buy ion cannons and basically you're just trying to escape this rebel fleet and get to the end of these sectors. And along the way you fight a bunch of enemy ships and basically level up and get new equipment. But you die, and you die a lot in this game. And I think I think a lot of people enjoyed this game a lot more than I did, even though I enjoyed it a lot. I think the biggest flaw with the game is that it relies a lot on luck. Because it's so much of how well you do in the game is determined by... You just happening to like run into these random sort of events that will end up giving you items, and you know you're always going to get run into those random events. But sometimes the items, you know, like the I think part of the thing that killed it for me was I did end up beating the game about I think on like my eighth try, which is really early. Like you shouldn't be able to do that basically. But I just ended up getting, like, a cloaking device really early on. I got a really badass burst laser really early on. And then I got an anti-ship drone really early on. And it was sort of an unbeatable combination where my, my anti-ship drone kept their shields down. And then my lasers would just pepper them. And then I could cloak to dodge missiles. So I was, like, kind of unbeatable. And I just, just kind of happened to get all this, like, perfect equipment that synergized and allowed me to beat the game. And once I beat the game, I was like, I could try to go through this with the other spaceships, but I feel like... There's not a whole lot of point. I mean, each playthrough is very differently. It plays out a lot differently, but you don't have a lot of control on how it plays out differently. And that's sort of the biggest flaw of the game. But, you know, for a game that you can pick up for, like, ten bucks, it is definitely a game that I think anyone should have. It's If you have just, you know, like an hour or 30 minutes to kill, it is a game that I will bring up all the fucking time. So, yeah, FTL is definitely, definitely a quality title. Then... Uh, other games I played this year. This one I wish I had managed to finish, but I got sidetracked with another game that is on my top games list that I got sidetracked on for a very, very long time. But it is uh, another downloadable title called Dust and Elysian Tale, which is basically this which sort of... has the saddest scene. It has one of the saddest in, scenes in... Okay, well, actually... In media my, as a whole. My list is populated with three different games that have almost made me cry when no game I have ever played has almost made me cry. And this one almost kind of, like, I not to the level the other games on my top five list did, but there's a scene in this game where this you go to, like, this mud people village, and there's, like, this one mud people kid, and, like, his mom, and then his dad is, like, dying, and it's just... It is a sad... There's a sad fucking scene in the game. God, I... I sat down and watched... I swapped. Yeah, it was like the first time you saw me playing the game. It's not even that far into it. No, and I... Can I just describe what I saw? Yeah, okay, you go. You explain what you saw with the game. I basically saw the, like, animated video game, like, equivalent of Schindler's List. Yeah, Where, basically. like, basically, the dad dies, and the kid 
and it's just, like, you just wallow in the grief for, like, half an hour of the game where the kid is just, he cannot understand what death is, mm -hmm. and you have to basically, the mom has to explain, like, well, you're never going to see Pa again. He's gone from your life. And he's, <laughs> he's just, he's wrecked. Like, that kid's life is ruined. He's fucked. The mother, she's going to have to provide for these kids all on her own. She doesn't know what to do. And then Dust, the main character, is just beating himself up because he let this kid's father die and he let the town down and he doesn't know what to do and it's, his life is ruined and everything has gone wrong and it I did not know a thing about this game and I sat down to watch this and I teared up watching this and I knew nothing about Dustin the Legion Tale I had never played it yeah, that's, I mean, and that was what it sort of, and this is why I really want to finish the game, because I felt like the story was going in an interesting place. Again, I got sidetracked. But yeah, it was, it's a game that definitely, it has some really good voice acting, it's got some really good writing, and as far as like, the, it's got a really fun, intuitive combat system, it's sort of a 2D side-scroller, it's got some sort of Metroidvania elements of where you get pickups or power-ups that allow you to do different abilities, that allow you to get to different areas. And it's, it's a definitely a really good game that I want to go back to. And one that's not getting a lot of attention, even though I, I know that the story does go in a very interesting place just from what I've heard. So I'm kind of surprised that the game's not getting the attention that I really feel it deserves. But it's definitely a game I want to go back to and one I felt like I had to mention. Because it very well could, you know, when I do end up finishing it, I'll probably end up talking about it on the podcast. Because it may very well earn a place on my top five list of the year, but yeah. didn't, didn't get around to it. Then, obviously, there was the Black Mesa Source mod that came out for that came for free. That was sort of the recreation of Half-Life 1 in the Source engine that we you know, did a whole podcast on. And I yes. don't know. Don't really need to talk about that a whole lot. But, you know, it's, I, I don't know even if I were to really consider it. Because it seems like not something I would consider as being a Game of the Year sort yeah. of contender. I don't even know if I did it would be on that list. Even though, you know, I have a huge fondness for Half-Life 1. And I think that mod is an astounding thing. It's an amazing project. But, you know, Half-Life 1 is definitely still a game that was made in 1996, and you can tell that even with yeah. uh, sort of the fancy graphics engine. And so they do some smarter stuff that fix some of those problems with the mod, but there's only so much you can do. There's still, you know, obviously it's a free mod. If you you download Team Fortress 2 for free and pick this up and try it out, that's something I, you know, there's no reason not to play Black Mesa Source. But it's not it's still not deserving of a top five games of the year, but it's a damn good game in its own right. And then the last game I want to mention is another game I have not quite finished that I picked up on a Halloween Steam sale a while ago and didn't get quite around to to finish it in time for this. Is a sequel to a game I very much liked. It's uh, The Darkness 2, where the original Darkness was a first-person shooter that came out from Starbreeze Studios that I don't believe is still a video game studio. I think I think they shut got shut down. But it was a very early Xbox 360 title and a very sort of experimental first-person shooter that had a very heavy focus on exploration and storytelling. And it's based on this 90s comic book franchise called The Darkness about this guy who Vinny who he uh, gets a uh, he he he's on his 21st birthday, he sort of inherits this mystical power called the darkness that is this big sort of like almost Cthulhu-ish monster that's like this powerful force that inhabits his body. And it, in, in term, gameplay terms, it sort of gives him these mystical powers where he has these like black oozy tentacles that will pop out of his arms and these like mouths and he can summon darklings. And The Darkness 1 was a very flawed but very interesting title. And The Darkness 2 was a very surprising sequel that came out very early this year that went, took it in a very different direction that still had a very heavy focus on narrative but had a much stronger, faster-paced, sort of linear 
first-person shooter action gameplay where the game has... You sort of have this... Uh, it's almost like you have you have four weapons at the same time, basically, where you can have two single-wheeled weapons, and then you've also got these tentacles that are sort of... One tentacle is on your right bumper, one tentacle is on your left bumper, and the left bumper tentacle can grab things, and the right bumper tentacle can just slash people apart. And it's this very frenetic, very fast-paced gameplay where there are always... Again, it's kind of like XCOM, where there are, like, tons of different ways that you can use the combat in this game. And it's like you can just go hack people apart with the tentacles. You can chuck you know, like, big pieces of 2 by 4 at people's heads with your tentacle, or you can just blow people apart with a shotgun. And it is definitely a very satisfying action first-person shooter, but it also sort of has a trend of first-person shooters in this game, or of this uh, year, where they have your character in first-person actually being a character and having a voice and talking, and it has a very interesting, strong narrative drive, and I haven't been able to finish it for... It's not a game that I put on my top five year list, anyways. But it's definitely got a very interesting narrative direction, and it's sort of very heartening to see so many first person shooters this year, you know, taking some steps into evolving what they can do with the story. And so, The Dark Souls Two is definitely also a very good game that's you can probably get cheaper now. It's, mm-hmm. It'll probably be on a Steam sale for if you want to get it on PC later this year as well. So, so Sean. Your top five games of 2012. Top five mostly, yes. Number five is... Don't, don't, you don't have to... I don't have, have to do, do that? that. Okay. I can do it for your list. Don't do okay. it for mine. Thanks. But my number five, top mostly top ten games of the year, <laughs> number five is The Walking Dead, which was a game that I just finished playing yesterday that I also picked it up on Steam for 25% off. You could probably still get it off for 25% off when you're hearing this for the uh, Steam holiday sale if you want to. It's definitely, you know, obviously a damn good game, and it is the game that was the hardest for me to figure out where I was going to put on this list, because it is a game, if you know, it won the Game of the Year award for uh, the Spike Video Game Awards, which is very surprising, because it was not the event that you would expect would give a smaller game like this that kind of award. You know, it was a game, it was a sort of event where you would expect Halo 4 or Call of Duty Black Ops 2 to win the Game of the Year, but The Walking Dead is definitely a game that if you don't know what it is, it was a di- downloadable title that sort of had five episodes that came out. That it wasn't even like a regular release, but it came out over the course of this year, and from Telltale Games, which is a game studio that's sort of been keeping the adventure game genre alive, which is a video game genre that doesn't need to be kept alive, and that's sort of one of the biggest problems with The Walking Dead is it's too much of an adventure game, but it's a very very interesting strong narrative experience and it's almost it's it's more of a video game than i thought it was going to be when i went into it it does have you know interact it does have a lot of interactive elements but the most interesting part of the game and the reason you play the game is for its very well written dialogue it's very it's phenomenal voice acting and for its really intelligent use of dialogue choices and i guess that's kind of where i want to start with talking about this game is that what the game does well the game does very very, very well, and it has the best dialogue system I've ever seen in a video game, where your main character, Lee, sort of every time you get into a conversation, you have potentially four choices, they usually fill out all four of them to respond to what other characters talking to you, and you have a, and it's, there's a timer on it, which is a very smart decision, because the, you make really hard choices in this game. And one of the problems is that for a lot of the episodes, the choices don't matter. And it's very transparent, at least to me, that the choices are not significant. That no matter what you choose, it will play out the exact same way. And it does that too much. But it always, every single dialogue choice does feel like it will at the very least help 
characterize your version of Lee and sort of allow you to roleplay in a very interesting way where it sort of takes the Mass Effect style of dialogue and takes it to the next step where it does feel like you can have... It feels like they wrote the dialogue in such a clever way that you can take that Lee character and make him very dynamic and make him develop in ways you wouldn't expect by choosing different kinds of dialogue options where they're sort of the same basic, you know, there's the sort of passive Lee who doesn't want to get involved, there's a Lee who's like the kind of nice Lee who's trying to do the right thing, and then there's the Lee who's sort of being beaten down by this zombie world he's living in, and he's sort of becoming more and more of an asshole. And Lee has sort of a shady past where there's, it's sort of ambiguous what happened, but you find out, if, like, the first thing that you find out about him is that he did kill a man. And you don't know that you... It's one of the interesting things about the game is that you never really find out the details of how that murder came about. But Lee is definitely not necessarily the nicest guy, but they write the dialogue choices in such a way where you can imagine... The, your version of Lee being he was this really sort of very angry man in the past, but his experiences with helping this girl, Clementine, that you find in the first episode, was sort of the heart of the story as you protected this girl. You can see him, a character arc where he sort of becomes softened and nicer because of his experiences with Clementine. He becomes a better person because of it, despite the world he's living in. Or you can see he was a man who's been in this bad situation from the start, and all this shit around him is delving him further and further or kind of Miley was sort of a mix of the two, where he started out where his relationship with Clementine was really helping him out, and then he went through some dark patches, and then at the end he came out on top again. And it's sort of, the dialogue is so well written that it does allow your characterization to be so diverse and so strong for the main character, and that is what makes this game so good. And But one of the reasons why it was so hard to place this game is that the game, I feel, does have a kind of staggering amount of flaws in the sense that they are not addressed by people who talk about this game. This game has very universal critical acclaim that I don't think it deserves to that level. Where a lot of people, I feel like, when I read how people respond to this game, if I had responded to the game in such a way, in the way they did, it probably would be my number one. But, sort of, as I said before, one of the critical flaws with the game is that, particularly for Episode 3 and Episode 4... It becomes very readily apparent, at least it did to me, that your choices do not matter. There are multiple times in the game where you are presented with a choice to say, to save this one character or save a different character, and there are multiple times it does that, but no matter what you choose, if you choose to, like, one character is predetermined to die, and if you choose to try to save that character, they will die regardless, and then there are other situations where certain characters will live, and they could have died, but they're having lived immediately marginalizes them and they are no longer important to the plot because they could have died and it's a problem that Mass Effect also has but due to Mass Effect's length it is not as apparent as it is in The Walking Dead so that middle stretch of the series the episode 3 sort of like the last half of episode 3 and the entirety of episode 4 are big drag I feel and there's not a lot of story drive but episode 1 and then episode 2 in particular episode 2 I think is probably the best one because it's sort of self-contained in the sense, the sort of the, the arc of episode two sort of like has this beginning and this end, but obviously the characters stay through for the entire series. The episodes three and four definitely drag a lot, and I think it's a big problem. And then the other massive, huge issue I have with this game is that it's too much of an adventure game, and it really earns the fact that it has the word walking in the title because you walk in this game and you walk a lot, and you never, ever fucking run. There is. The critical flaw with this fucking game 
is that you can't run, and there are these situations, it's very adventure gaming, where you have puzzles that are not puzzles, they are just, I need to collect all the items in this area, and then rub them on every other item to see if there's some sort of magical reaction that allows me to get to the interesting parts of the game, and that happens way too much, and it sort of screeches the story to a fucking halt, because it's like, okay, I'm in this new zone, I have to walk around the zone, I have to talk to every single character, I have to press A on everything in here, and then I can move on, and it does that way too much, and it does that when your character moves at a fucking snail's pace, and it drove me goddamn insane in episodes 3 and 4, where, I just have to say, when a game makes me think that my analog stick is broken because my character is moving too slow, and I have to switch to using the keyboard to make sure that if I have a, like, all-or-nothing controller input, that it still is not moving me at snail's pace, that's a problem. Because he moves really goddamn slow, and and that sort of passed the game out. Where my total time played, I looked at was twelve hours, and I that could have been a six-hour game. Like they're just, just from walking. Yeah, just just from walking and the dumbass puzzles. I think the the one that like really drove me insane is there's a situation in episode three where all your characters get to this train and you're trying to fix this train to go somewhere, and. There's this thing where you're walking around along the side of the train. There's sort of these, like, three, like, sort of closet doors on the side of the train. And you open each and every one of them because, of course, you have to find everything. You have to find every item. And then the first one, there is a button. And the second one, fucking empty. And I have to say, every time you open the doors, there's this really slow door opening animation where it's like, okay, Lee's leaning over. He looks, opens the door. He looks inside. And now I get to, like, select the thing. So the, the first one, you have to look at the door animation. There's a button. Second one, door animation. Fucking nothing. It's just a trap. It's just to waste your time. And the third one, there's these three different tools, and you need to use those tools to fix the train. But in the first one, the button that's there, you can't press the button yet because you have to go press some other buttons to be able to press that button. By the time I pressed those other buttons, I didn't remember which one of those doors had the fucking button in it. So when I got around there, I had to open every fucking door again because, of course, the last one I choose is the one that had the fucking button I need to push. So I had to watch this dumbass, like, 30-second-long door-opening animation six times. Needed to be one. You could have put the tools and the button in one fucking compartment on the side of the train. Or you didn't even need to have the fucking train there. You didn't need to have the puzzles there. They definitely, the biggest flaw of this game is that it, it's too interactive, which is a weird complaint to have with a video game. Yeah. But the good parts of the game are the stories, the characters are really well developed, and that's the interesting part of the game, and they have way too many of these sort of like adventure gamey dumbass puzzles, and this annoying, slow, the slowest walking animation I have ever seen, to the point where it is so slow that I felt like my analog stick was broken. Like, it's, like the walking animation in the game looks like when you're playing a normal third-person game, and you, like, barely tap the analog stick, and you have that really awkward walking animation, where it's the normal walking animation, but he's going slower than he should, so it's like he's walking normally, but he's, like, not moving at all. It looks like that. It's fucked up. It feels like they did it on purpose, and it's short, and it really pissed me off. But what redeems the whole thing is episode 5 is really, really well done. Episode In episode 5, this is one of the games of the year that almost made me cry, where episode 5, they because of the nature of the way the choices obviously work in video games, where when you have this like structured plot, and I'll probably talk about this again when Mass Effect comes around. Spoilers, that's on the fucking list. But the way choices are constructed, obviously, you can only account for so much, which is why when characters survive when they could have died they are immediately marginalized, because if you're doing a playthrough where that character dies, 
well, then the plot would be fucked. So, you know, you obviously have to construct the, the plot in such a way that that, that is, a, a, that is an, a reality of trying to make a game like this. And But it felt like they did not understand that, and that's what made the middle chapters hard. But, luckily, that means for the last chapter, where even though they're making a season two, but they managed to end season one in such a way where all the choices are able to come to a head, and all the choices you make in episode five feel very significant, where... I mean, you can go through episode 5 with, like, five different characters with you, or you could go through episode 5 with none of those characters with you. And even though that does not change the events of episode 5, there's only one ending, and there's only sort of one plot and story that goes through it, it does really change sort of the subtext and the emotion of the scenes, because, you know, either Kenny's with you, or Kenny's left you, or, you know, Ben could be with you, or Ben might have died in episode 4, and that really sort of can change the tone of the episode, and... Episode 5 really makes your choices feel significant. It's a very satisfying experience. I feel Episode 2 is the same way. And, you know, this is this is still a damn good game that I feel like hopefully Season 2 will look at... Because nobody is nobody has said about this game that the puzzles and the adventure game elements are fun. Nobody talks about that. Because well, here's the thing. Good, I, good. I, haven't even, I did not know until you told me just now that there were those elements. Because yeah. nobody talks about them. Yeah, nobody... All. Exactly. The, when I heard about this game, I didn't know you could walk around. I thought the level of your interactivity were the dialogue choices and basically quick time events. And some of the quick time events are really bullshit in this game, too. Where there are some times where you have these sort of dumb, like, you're kind of... It's kind of a first-person shooter for this, like, really short sequence. And it does not control well enough for them to have tried no. to do that. But... Yeah, it's, it has too many adventure game elements, and hopefully, since nobody likes those, or at the very least, nobody says anything about them, hopefully Telltale will look at that and be like, either A, let's put in a goddamn run animation, and like, or something that allows you to speed up some of that kind of, that, that process. Because that process is important to the pacing, I do recognize that it does serve a legitimate function. I think they could be creative and find another way to do it that would yeah. work a lot better. And so I'm hoping Walking Dead Season 2 might be what, to me, what Walking Dead Season 1 was to a lot of people, but I do think it has some significant flaws, and that's why it's at number 5, but it also has some of the highest, it has higher highs than almost all the games on this list, and so that's why it's on here. If it didn't, if Episode 5 was not as astoundingly good, and Episode 2 as astoundingly good as they were, this game would not be on this list, but the game is worth it for that, for that experience, and... If you feel like episode the second half of episode three and episode four are fucking drag, I am with you, man. Get through it for episode five, like no matter what. You definitely have to get to episode five and see because it ends in a very, very sort of heartbreaking way, but in this very like very earned way. So, Walking yes. Dead is definitely, definitely a game that maybe does not deserve the amount of praise it is getting, but it does deserve a shit ton of praise because it is definitely doing something that no other game has been trying to do yet. So that is my number five pick. And well, what is your number four? My number four pick, incidentally, is Halo 4, which surprised, it was surprising to me when I was making this list that Halo 4 ended up as low on the list as it did because I fucking love this game, obviously. Oh, well, of course we do. Yeah, we, we did, we did oh, like a three-hour-long podcast just talking about Halo 4, and so I don't think I'm going to really get into it as much as I did with The Walking Dead. But, you know, Halo 4... Everything awesome we said about Halo 4 in our Halo 4 podcast still applies. The graphics are, astan- are astonishing. The art style is absolutely incredible. The sound design is probably the best sound design of any game I've played in years. Yeah. And the music the music is really good, but it's they, I, actually, I think the game does not serve the music no. as well as it could have. I think the music's great no matter how you slice it. Yeah, the it, music's but... really, really great, but the game does not use it 
the way it sort of needed to. No. Which is, this is a, a, this a disappointing aspect of the game, but the music's still fun. You know, I'll still put in the soundtrack every oh, now yeah. and then and listen to some of the tracks, because the music's absolutely phenomenal. And there are some moments, you know, the very end of the game, I think the music, they, they use that very effectively. The last level, I think. Yeah, the last level, they yeah. use the music really, really well. It's got, the, I think I've come around to saying it's probably got the best story, or at least the best character of any Halo game, and that's, really impressive because they are working with Master Chief who yeah. has not been particularly well characterized in the games before. I definitely agree it has the best character development. I would not yeah. say story. Yeah, I would, yeah, because it does have some pretty big story flaws where there's there's there are a couple, maybe too many out of nowhere exposition dumps and some, it sort of assumes that you know things that you shouldn't know, like the yeah. nature of the didact, which for me was not a huge problem, but for most people it definitely would be because again, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a huge Halo fan and I yeah. didn't yeah, you didn't know shit about the fucking didact, and that is not a problem. Like that's, yeah, that's not your not, fault. No, that is that is, you know the didact already was a pretty obscure character in Halo lore, and they just kind of assumed that you kind of know who he was. They did like the, the best thing about that part was that Cortana just sort of knows who the didact is. Yeah, it just is like that didact is getting away, and that is the first time his name is mentioned in the game. Is that line that didact is getting away? That's how you know he's the didact. Yeah, it was, I'm somehow. just because I was sitting because I knew it was going to be the didact because the sort of they used his end like his symbol in a lot of the trailers. So basically, anyone who was like a huge fucking Halo nerd like me knew the didact was going to basically be this ancient evil that is awakening yeah. that they teased in the trailers. So it's like I was waiting, but it's like I was waiting because I I like those moments where it's like, oh, the Master Chief and Cortana now get to find out who the didact is, and it's like, oh, shit, I guess, I guess they, I mean, I guess maybe they really did read the Halo Three terminals. I guess that's canonical because that's where I found out about the didact from. But that's kind of disappointing. Like I yeah. didn't get to see that character moment. But you know, aside from those sort of big plot weird things, the character beats between Cortana and Master Chief are masterfully done. Beautifully done. Yeah, they're, the voice acting is out of this park, and it's... it's That aspect of the game is done better than any other Halo game, and that's really impressive, because it's really hard to do that kind of thing in a first-person shooter of this style. And I think as a, as a first-person shooter of this sort of linear, mission-based action style, it does that better than any other game I've seen. I think maybe Black Ops 2 gives us some competition based on some of the stuff I've heard about it, but I didn't play Black Ops 2. But well, but also in Black Ops 2, you're not working with characters you have years of Yeah, exactly, that with. I have a huge amount of affection for. Yeah. But then, you know, the, the heart of the game is its multiplayer and the, the gameplay, and that is absolutely phenomenal. You know, we, we, we deconstructed oh, yeah. that to an astounding extent. In there our are quibbles here podcast. and there, but considering that 343 rebuilt Halo from the ground up, yeah. this is... I mean, this is a new series in many ways. This is yeah, it's a new, it's a new trilogy. It's it's Halo 2.0. It's the next level of Halo, and it's really damn good. I've been still, I'm still playing it a lot. Yeah, and me too. It, it is the multiplayer game that I keep on going back to when I want just some, you know, some yeah. fun multiplayer. If I need something to do like that, it's still the game I go back to. And the other thing I guess I should say is that I am a little bit disappointed with how Spartan Ops has been going about. We've got like. I guess, like, maybe the first half of the first season of Spartan Ops. It's sort of like taking a couple of weeks break until the next half comes out. And it's still fun, but they reuse way too many maps. But the last week of Spartan Ops definitely was a... They, they put a lot more story and heart into it, and so hopefully that will improve. But sort of the Spartan Ops offering we've had so far does not meet what my expectations are, and I don't and think it meets what Spartan Ops needed to be, because yeah. it had a lot of potential, and it still has a lot of potential. Like, they still can't fix it, but 
they definitely did not take they didn't take the story part of it far enough to make it a really meaningful experience yet. And, and, and I will to the game's detriment. And I'll admit, I have one increasingly major problem with multiplayer. Just personally, is I feel I'm getting tired of Halo Four much faster than I got tired of Three or Reach. I'm kind of giving that sense too because yeah. there's just almost no variety in the multiplayer playlist options. Yeah, I, they need to. They've 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 done some good stuff. You know, they they've put out they put out Team SWAT, and I think Team yeah. SWAT's been there since they put it out, and they've. Like rolled a few playlists that will come and go, but I do agree they need to, they need to go back to the team slayer team objective style where you pick game type and map that allows some a lot yeah. more variety in matchmaking. I it's feel. it's just there's very little variety to it, and it's too bad because I feel like I never got tired of playing Reach. I always liked playing Reach because it was a little different every time you played it, mm-hmm. and four has gotten a little stale, and it's not stale in a bad way. It's just that. I don't know if it rewards Marathon playing quite as well as Reach did. Yeah, I, I, I'll agree with that. I think it's... As I play it more and more, I think I still... Halo 3 is my favorite multiplayer offering for as far as Halo goes, I think. But, you know, Halo... But Halo 4 still has a lot of room to, to develop. You know, we're still in the very early stages, and if you're a big fan of Halo games and you play them for a long time, you recognize the multiplayer develops wildly oh, over yeah. the course of the game's lifespan. Well, for so. instance, we have not seen any real Forge maps yet. Yeah, exactly. They haven't started rolling that kind of stuff in. They haven't... Like, they... I think they... Like, the critical thing they need to do for multiplayer is put in, like, a Team Action Sack playlist that just has crazy game types. Yes. I always... Because, you know, I would never, like, play those for hours and hours, but it was always, like, a fun... You know, I'm kind of tired of Slayer. I'm gonna... I'm gonna play golf in Halo. I'm gonna, like, jump into yeah. that. Those, those were always a lot of fun, and so... Hopefully, you know, 343 can get around to rolling some of those out. Again, it's still, you know, Halo 4 only came out like a month ago. So they, we still, there's still a lot of time for it to expand. But as it is stands right now, it, I feel like it needs to be a little lower lower on the list than I thought it was going to be when I start, first started making the list. But, yeah, it's still a great game. It's, yeah, it's still, it's still a damn good game. And it's, yeah. you know, obviously it's a game worth playing. I have my limited yeah. edition collector's edition. It was worth $100? Yeah. I mean, the map packs for free, and I got my specializations early. Yeah, and I've got a cool little book and Ford Under Dawn, so... It's all good. Halo 4, still fucking awesome. Now then... Number three. Number three. I didn't even think about this when I was making <laughs> this list. My number three is Far Cry 3. My four is Halo 4. My number three is Far Cry 3. And, you know, I, this is also another game that I've talked about yeah. a lot on the, play, on the podcast, so I'm not going to go really into it, but I think, for me, Far Cry 3, the reason why it places... As high because I, when I was first making the list, I thought it was probably going to be my number five spot. But then I realized it is probably the game I had the most sort of like raw gaming fun this year. Where this game is just fucking fun, and that is what's so good about it. The gameplay is just smooth. It's interesting. It allows a lot of player creativity, and the world they created is just so much fun to explore. That it's one of those games that as soon as I beat it, I was like. I'm just going to start playing it again because I want to get back into it and I want to I want to go back through the skill trees. I want to kind of experiment with the weapons in a different way, play some of the missions again. And so, you know, as soon as I beat it, I jumped right into it again and it's still goddamn fun. And that is... It is an amazing achievement. Like, I have not had this much just raw fun with the game in a very, very long time. But, as we talked about, I think, on the last podcast, it does... The story aspect of it had a lot of potential at the very beginning, but it very rapidly fell apart in a really disappointing way, and the way the game ends puts such a sort of a bad taste in your mouth because it 
it's got one of the worst game endings I've seen in a very long time. It's just... It, it sort of, like, all culminates in this really dumb, like, binary choice that is completely irrelevant. And it feels like the game really lost track of what it was trying to do as far as the story goes. And so that's why the game... Like, if the, if the story had delivered on what it promised at the very beginning... Like, if, like, the rest of the story aspect of the game was as good as the, like, the very beginning of the game, like, the, like literally, like, the first five minutes, this would be one of the best games I've played in, like, five years. It would have been easily the top game on the list, but the story really falls apart, and it's a huge disappointment, but the game is just so goddamn fun that he fucking has to be on the list. Like, just, just driving around the world, you know, like... Before you came here to start doing the podcast, I was hunting bears in a jeep, for the, so I could skin them yeah. and and I could uh, make a bigger arrow quiver. So this it, definitely sounds like my kind of game. I yeah, I this is a game it. I think you would love a lot yeah. because you can sort of. And actually, I, on my second playthrough, I've just been trying to blow through the story mission so I can unlock some of the higher level skills and the wingsuit. And I think. If you're someone who knows that you're not going to give a shit about the story, and I think most people are not going to really give a shit about the story, I the kind of the way I think I would recommend playing this game is blow through the story missions as quickly as possible to get to the like the last section, like you unlock the last island and get the wingsuit, and then once you get the wingsuit, go back and start doing all the other shit because now you'll be able to unlock all the skills. And then you'll have the wingsuit, and it's so much goddamn fun to just jump off this cliff and just, like, start gliding. It's completely fucking ridiculous. It, like, it's the one of the few things in this game that's like, this is, would be, this is completely fucking impossible. Like, this is some dumb sci-fi wingsuit thing you get, but it's so fucking cool. And, you know, just the other day, I, one of the outposts I raided... It was yeah, it's so much fun because I've sort of you know now I've had a lot of time with the game. I could I understand the sort of the weapon sandbox well enough that I could really get creative. And I raided this one outpost where I I put C four like two things of C four on top of this jeep and then drove the jeep and jumped out so that it drove into the middle of the camp, blew it up. Everyone turned around, started looking at the jeep, and I ran in, stabbed the dude in the back. Pulled his pistol out, killed two of his friends, turned around, ran up a flight of stairs, did a flying leap off of a deck, and landed on a dude's face knife first, and cleared the outpost in, like, 30 seconds. It was one of the fucking coolest things. Like, that's one of the things this game does. When you get some of the higher level skills, you just are able to do the coolest fucking shit in this game. And it is so much fun, and that is why Far Cry 3 is my number three choice for my top five mostly games of the year. Yes. And... So now, moving on to number two. Unfortunately, my number two choice is not a game that ends with the number two. It's actually a game that ends in the number three. You've got a lot of threes on this yeah, list. Yeah, I do have a lot of threes on this list. It is Max Payne 3, a game that came out this spring, and is a game that has not gotten a lot of the sort of game of the year attention that I thought it would get. Like, it's not even necessarily on a lot of the nominees for, like, best action game or best third-person shooter. It's really surprising. It feels like it's almost sort of like the gray situation where it came out. Yeah before the, like, really heavy season for games. So a lot of people kind of forgot about it. But when I was looking at all the games I played this year, and I looked at Max Payne 3, and I was just thinking back, and Max Payne 3 is kind of like Far Cry 3. It is a fun fucking game. It is the best, like, as far as the third-person shooting goes, it is the most fun I've had in the third-person shooter. I think it adds, it has that nice rock star touch of, going back to this word that we've overused, authenticity, where the animation is so accurate and sort of they you know the sort of the shooting elements in Max Payne 3 
you've got this shoot-dodge move, this sort of, like, John Woo action movie type thing where you jump through the air, it'll go into, like, slow motion. But what I love about it in this is it sort of ties in with Max Payne in this game being this, like, sort of old, bitter man who's been through all this shit, and he's not this, like, spry young New York cop he was in the first two games. I was able to just do all this ridiculous action movie stuff where, you know, if you jump through the air and start doing that and you slam, like, headfirst into a fucking pillar, it looks like Max Payne just slammed headfirst in the pillar and he falls on his ass and he's just like, oh! And the game just... It makes you, like... Like, those little touches are all over the place. Like, you know, they'll just be, like, over the course of a level, his, like, undershirt will just get sweatier and sweatier because he's fighting, like, midday in Rio de Janeiro and it is, like, 100 degrees outside. And this is, like, a 50-year-old dude who's bald and he's beaten and battered and he's just sweating all over the place. And it sort of has all these little details that really get you involved, you know. they're Like, it's one of the few games that has a sort of a weapon management system that's very realistic, where you can have two handguns, and those handguns will appear in your holsters, and you can carry one two-handed weapon, and he fucking carries a two-handed weapon. And if you have a two-handed weapon, you can't do-wield with your pistols, you have to pull out one pistol or the other, because he's going to carry the rifle in his free hand. And, like, just little details like that really help you get immersed. And then it's also a game that, with all the... how much fun and involving the shooting aspects are, it also... Has a, I think one of the biggest complaints that the game has is that it uses a lot of cutscenes, but to me that's only a problem on your second playthrough because you can't skip a lot of the cutscenes because they hide loading screens behind the cutscenes so they're unskippable. But the first time you play through the voice acting and just and just the acting, like it's, still, it's sort of like with Far Cry 3 where the animation is so good. It's not just voice acting at this point. It really is with the motion capture. It's the people, like, actors giving a proper performance in a video game in a way that is really great. And it's, it's really involving. It's something that I've been waiting for for a very long time for video games. It's sort of, I think Grand Theft Auto 4 was the first game that really started doing that, where you're having full, full-bodied performances in video games. And Max Payne 3 does that to such an extent that the story really gets you involved. The story is so well presented, if it's not maybe the most unique story in the world... But it makes Max a character that you really sympathize and care for and one you really like to play as. And you really come to... He's this old, bitter fucking man. And he has, like, the just, you know, the narration that he has in his head, like that noir-style narration that sort of feels out of place because he, as a character, is very out of place in this Rio de Janeiro setting where he much more belongs in New York as a cop. But he's, you know, he's working as a bodyguard in Rio de Janeiro and he's out of place, he's out of his element... But he's still trying to do the right thing, and you, over the course of the game, trying to figure out what the right thing is, really makes it a very involving experience, and it's one of the most fun I've had playing a game this year. And it's, I think its story element really carries it through the way that Far Cry 3 did not, and I think Max Payne 3 is sort of an example of a better version of Far Cry 3. Like, obviously the gameplay is different, but sort of they try to do similar things with their story, and Max Payne 3 really delivers on it in a way Far Cry 3 doesn't. And it's also a game this year that, as soon as I finished playing it, I was like, I have to start playing it again, but on the harder difficulties, because that is a fucking hard game. Max Payne 3 is a game that has, it has a steep learning curve. Like, you you get good at Max Payne 3, and just Max Payne 3 by playing it. It's a game that you have to really learn the way its shooting works, because it's, even though, unlike, sort of, like, the outside of it, it may seem like it's just Gears of War, it's not just Gears of War, it is a very different kind of third-person cover shooter. And once you get really good at the combat, which you will by the end of the game, it's this really fulfilling, satisfying experience where it's like, I can just start taking dudes out now because I've gotten good at this game and I'm a fucking badass. And 
Yeah. Something I'm noticing also looking through your games of 2012, mm-hmm. most of them have to have at least two discs to do their story. Yeah, that's true. It's sort and of it's sort of the year of we need to have two discs now. Or the year of the new consoles need to come because yeah. we can't. Or, or the year of, man, the 360 really needed a Blu-ray player. Yeah. God damn it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, so, it's kind of funny because PS3 had that problem solved from the start. It's like yeah. 50 gigabyte discs were good for years. Yeah. But you now we're at the point where it's like, I feel like if you pushed any further than now, you'd have to be getting like three, four, five disc games. Yeah. Actually, that is kind of funny. But Halo 4, Max Payne 3, and... Okay, here we go. My number one choice, Mass Effect 3, two discs. Obviously, it's a big game. Yeah, it is a game that needs its two discs, and it is easily, I would say, the most controversial title to come out this year. And it is a game that... For reasons that, without playing it, I just suspect we're stupid. I, I, I think they're really goddamn stupid. I think even if you did not like the ending, if, like, if you're a fan of video games and you somehow don't know about the controversy, you know, Mass, Mass Effect 3 is the last in a trilogy of games that came out, started, I think, 2007. And it, it's one of, it is my favorite franchise of video games, basically, of all time. I think it's a really astounding RPG series, that how it carries through decisions. Obviously, there are really lofty expectations on Mass Effect 3 that I think it fulfilled, but a lot of people, the way it ended, did not agree with like, oh, I, the way they like, think it should end. Boo-hoo, you didn't like the last half hour of a 50-hour game. It's not even the last half hour. It's like the last 15 minutes. It's like the last fucking conversation in the game. And they do present these like three choices at the very end of the game that... I don't necessarily think that aspect of the ending is great, but I think all the stuff around it is... You know, a lot of people are like, this ending came out of nowhere. I was like, this ending has been foreshadowed since the beginning of Mass Effect 1. It resolves the primary conflict of the entire series, and... It, oh, what your your sci-fi series ends with this very intellectual dilemma in a very intellectual way. Boo-hoo-hoo. Watch some fucking sci-fi. That's how it works. Sci-fi doesn't have this very, like, character-driven emotional ending. Sci-fi is about ideas, ultimately, and Mass Effect 3, the way it ends, is about that. But a lot of people well, I mean, did not agree with that choice. Here's the thing, and it's too bad, but nothing can end these days without significant controversy. I agree. People start to like it. It's just no matter what it is. Yeah, any any long-running series that has yeah. to end, people are like, I, I just didn't want it to end, so I'm going to bitch. I'm going to fucking petition Bioware to change the ending. Like, that's just, it's such a ridiculous response. It's that, a ridiculous notion that you want yeah. to petition them to change the ending. They can end it however the fuck they want. It's their game. Yeah. But, I mean, God. Yeah. Anyways, aside from the controversy, I want to talk about Mass Effect 3 pop proper, because... I did talk about this on a podcast, but I believe it was we it was one of our prior iterations of the podcast. Yes, we, we did not talk about this on WGTC Radio, but a former podcast we hosted, The Monthly Stuff, we talked about Mass Effect yeah, 3. Which was, as I recall, that was the after a weekend where I had, this was when I had to live in the dorms, and so I was sort of living in the dorms, and then on the weekends I would sometimes come home because my Xbox was at my house, and sort of that was how I was playing video games. So when Mass Effect 3 came out, I had to binge play Mass Effect 3 in a way I have not binge played a game in a very long time <laughs> where actually another game on this list I binge played in a very similar way but for Mass Effect 3 I was so pressured for time because one I wanted to talk about it on our podcast and then two I didn't want to have to wait a week to go to end it so yeah. this is one of those games where this is my favorite way I can finish playing a game is when like, the last cutscene plays as, like, Dawn is coming up in the real world, and I've, like, played through the entire night. That was what it was like for this. I finished Mass Effect 3 at, like, 5 in the morning on a... 5 in the morning on the Monday. Oh, my so God. So, then go to school, and to, to, to drive all the way up to Boulder for the 38-minute drive, to go to school, and then talk about it on a podcast. And I was, like, shell-shocked, because 
this is a fucking emotional game. This, this, and particularly for me because I am such a fan of the franchise and the characters are so well written and so well developed over the course of these three games. And your your version of the main character, Commander Shepard, you can use your save to carry him across all the games. So your choices, similar to Walking Dead, it's actually very similar to Walking Dead since the choices work, will carry across the three games. And this is sort of the culmination of all of that. And I feel the entire game is an ending. Like, it's not... Like, they talk about the complaint about the way it wraps up at the very end, and you might have some quibbles about that, but the entirety of Mass Effect 3 is about solving sort of a bunch of these issues that have come across the Mass Effect franchise that you wouldn't even expect to solve. Like, there's one where, at the very beginning of Mass Effect 1, you get introduced into this, like, this really, really well-defined sci-fi universe. It's one of the most well-defined sci-fi universes I've ever encountered. It's they've really fleshed out all these alien species and these civilizations, and there's these long-standing problems to the universe that you come into. That that these races have these ancient conflicts with each other, with like these very complex sort of political issues. And one of them is there's this Krogan genophage, where there's one of these race of peoples, the Krogan, sort of expanded out into space really quickly, and they were this very aggressive, warlike species. And to sort of beat them down, they and the the rest of the Council races ended up sort of manipulating their genetics in such a way that they could no longer reproduce, or at least not at a proper rate. So it's only like one in like 20,000 Krogans could give birth. And so to sort of control their population, and Mass Effect 3, you know, you never expect to be able to solve these kinds of like ancient problems, but the nature of Mass Effect 3 is that you have to encounter these ancient like, you know, grudge matches between these species to try to get them on your side to fight against the Reapers. And the story of Mass Effect 3 is all about stopping these reapers which are these massive sort of synthetic warships these ancient ancient beings that have been sort of cultivating civilizations and recreating this cycle of destroying civilizations and sort of building other ones up and sort of cultivating the most powerful races from them and it's this very interesting game where mass effect 3 is you living out the apocalypse and the entirety of mass effect 3 is effectively about death, because what you are trying to do is fight against the impossible and fight against the inevitable and sort of fight against it tooth and nail. And, you know, this game does not have a happy ending. Like, you know from the outset, this doesn't end good for anybody. The best you can hope to do is maybe make it better for people who will hopefully survive and for the next generation. And that's really what this game is about, is sort of holding on as long as you can and trying to make it right even though you know you're not going to make it and trying to make it right for the people who are going to come after you. And what makes this game so great and so sort of emotionally impactful, and this is another one of those games where I almost cried playing it, was that you have these characters that you have been with for like 60 game in-game hours and that have come across all these all the entire trilogy. You have characters like Liara and Garrus and Tally who have been with you since the very beginning and you sort of get to, and you have these like last days with them, and you, you know, you. One of the most powerful scenes I've ever seen is Garrus, who is one of your sort of. He's this Turian this alien. I love Garrus. Yeah, he he's sort of like your best friend. He's your buddy, and you have this like one of your last scenes with him is you have this. You're on the Citadel, which is sort of one of the last bastions of safety in the entire galaxy, and he's and Garrus. He used to be this cop, the CSEC officer, on the, the security officer on the Citadel, so he knows all these rules. And he's like, hey man, get in this car with me. And you're like, okay, whatever. And you get in this car, and you fly up to the top of one of these like big sort of like bridges that you're not supposed to go to on the Citadel. And you get out, and you just have a drink with Garrus, and then 
to have this shooting competition with him because he wants to find out which one of you is the best sniper in the galaxy because, you know, you're these two elite soldiers. And you just hang out with Garrus for, like, you know, ten minutes. And it's one of the best scenes I have ever seen because you have all this history with this character and it sort of culminates in this moment where it's like this sort of defines your relationship. It's just like the world, the, the entire galaxy is falling apart. Like Earth and Palavin, his homeworld, are burning but the only thing you can do to keep yourself sane is to just hang out for a little bit and have this sort of like fun little bragging match with each other and betting on who's the best shot. And there are all these just beautiful moments like that and tragic moments where, you know, Liara, who was my shepherd's sort of love interest across the three games, eventually her homeworld gets attacked and, like, her seeing her homeworld burning, like, really devastates her. And there's, like, just so many great scenes like that where after I finish playing this game, and I don't want to spoil these... Yeah, I don't want to spoil the ending, but to me, the, the ending to me was really emotionally impactful because, again, it does not have a happy ending. And... After I played this game, I was, like, emotionally shell-shocked. Because and I, I could see that when we yeah. did our podcast. You were kind of, like, dead-eyed. I was, just... not, I was like, it, part of that was me being so tired. Part of that was just, like, you know, this world is yeah. gone now. Like, this galaxy, even though, you know, the way I ended the story, there was some hope left. But all of the endings, the best you can hope for is just, like, this little spark of, like, maybe it could be better. But you don't get to see whether or not it's better. Like, you don't get this, like, level of closure that I think a lot of people's problem with the ending is they wanted this dumbass, you know, oh, five years later, Liara had, like, five blue babies and lived happily of the Asari homeworld of Thessia. And Garrus became a politician. And that kind of, like, you know, like a sports movie ending where it's just, like, there's a slideshow and lists what happens to all the characters. They wanted the Breakfast Club ending where he goes out on the field and, like... Yeah, where Shepard's like, yeah, don't you forget about me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they wanted that. But... You know, it doesn't end that way, and you don't get this level of closure. And I'll, I'll tell you what, your description of it like this makes me so much more interested in playing this whole series, and I was already interested. Yeah. I, I've, I've played a good chunk of Mass Effect 1, yeah. and I just need to get back into it. But, like, just hearing about it, taking what sounds like some pretty big risks. It does take some, I think it takes some really fucking big-ass risks. And a lot of it is, I do have a very personal interpretation of what happens at the ending. I do think you need to interpret the ending. There's, there's stuff about the ending that you can't just take at face value. And I think it's really obvious you can't take it at face value. But, you know, the game does not offer you this, like, full level of closure. And it sort of leaves this open emotional wound in you because of it. And it's sort of... It feels very natural and very real that way because that's how life works. You don't get this sort of I know everything that happens a thousand years after my I die. You don't get that. You work as hard as you can, and when you die, you are fucking dead. You know that's how it goes. And the game, I think, realizes that reality and uses that really effectively. And you know, and it's a game that, like as I've said with Max Payne three and Far Cry three, where as soon as I finished the game, I had to play it again immediately. I can't play Mass Effect anymore. Like, I don't know when I will be able to play Mass Effect again, because to me, the story is done, and the story is done in such an effective and complete manner that it's like, I can't play anymore. And I don't, it's like, and I don't know if that's like, I think that's like an amazing thing, because this is one of my favorite video game franchises I've ever played, and it's been almost an entire year since the game came out, and it's like, I can't fucking play it. Like, I can't play it. I can't go back into that again. And it's like, I don't know. It's it's one of the most emotionally powerful experiences I've ever had in my life because of like of how it's been built up across all these games. And you know, I, I kind of like because the first game came out when I was in high school and sort of having all these characters develop with me. 
it's a really, really amazing experience because of the way you are so involved with your the ability you have to choose and the interactions you have with the character and the way you allow your character and the other characters to develop based on the way you choose them to. And that's, you know, that's why Mass Effect 3 is basically my favorite game of this year, the favorite game that I play that came out this year properly. So that's your number one choice. Yes. You have a I number have, zero choice. I have a number zero choice. This is a very special... Extra. Extra. My top five mostly, actually maybe top six. I don't know how to define it. Choice. This is... this is Okay, Mass Effect 3, that was like the good normal ending to my list. But as with is common to the genre and to the game that is actually at the top of my list, there is a secret true ending that you can only get by doing some really like obscure, obtuse bullshit that actually allows you to give like fight the real boss and find out what's really going on. This is the true ending to my list. My actual top game I played this year that the game I actually played did not come out this year, but there was a re-release of it that came out on the PS Vita this year. My favorite game this year, and one of the best games I've ever played of all time, a game that has single-handedly revitalized my interest in an entire fucking genre, is Shin Megami Tensei Persona 4. And... 2008. This game, it's a PS2 game that came out in 2008, and I got it this year... It was a game that sort of... It was very much a sleeper hit in America. I mean, obviously, a 2008 game yeah. for PS2. But, you know, the Shin Megami Tensei, the Persona series, is actually... It's ridiculous if you try to follow the Shin Megami Tensei part of it. Because it's a, the Persona part is actually a spin-off of the Shin Megami Tensei series. Ah. But there's, like, dozens of fucking games of the Shin Megami Tensei thing. But the Persona series... It's a game that's huge, huge, huge in Japan. And it's a game that, when it came out, I've heard about it from so many people that have said it's... One of the best games I've ever played for since it came out. So many people, so many gaming critics that I absolutely respect. And that I finally was like, you know, fuck it. I have to play this game. I have to see what this is about. Even though I sort of despised the JRP genre for a while now because I feel... It grew stagnant. It grew really stagnant. I think it, it didn't understand what to do with the gameplay parts. I think the story elements sort of fell into a very bad anime trap. Where JRPGs, I've, like, you have to accept that the characters and stories of JRPGs are the same as they would be in an anime, effectively. Because it's the same basic style. You know, they're Japanese-made games. And a lot of the sort of the more recent Final Fantasy games fall into really just horrible character cliches and horrible story cliches where they're all about this, this high philosophical concept that does not mean anything that you're trying to fight against. That's like, I'm going to try to kill the concept of sin in Final Fantasy X. It's like, what? Shut the fuck up, Titus, you little <laughs> pissant brat. But, yeah, no, like, the those and Persona 4 does fall into that particular cliche a little bit with its true ending, but I think it sidesteps it rather effectively. The Persona 4 is a game that I... The Persona 4 The Golden is the real release that came out this year for the PS Vita that I have not touched. I know it actually adds a shit ton of extra content, so if you are looking to play Persona 4 and you have a PS Vita... Get Persona 4 The Golden, because, you know, it's, again, my favorite game of the year. And while, and while I didn't play Gold, The Golden this year, I did play Persona 4 over the cross... Over the course of, basically, I've been playing this game since... Uh, I want to I think I ordered it in, like, early October. And so I've been playing it basically since then. I'm on my second playthrough. It has New Game Plus mode. And I'm trying to fucking figure out where I even start with this game. I guess the first play I should the first place I should start with this game is that by the time I finished my first playthrough, the time counter in the game said 95 hours. <laughs> my first playthrough of the game 
was 95 hours long, and that's why I have been playing this game since it first came out, or since uh, since the beginning of the year, basically, is that it is a long-ass fucking game, and this game fucking changes you, because you, you, have to, you have to spend 95 hours playing the game, and you will want to after you get into about the first five hours. Maybe the, like, one of the hard things to accept about this game is that the very nature of having a game as long as this means you have to accept some natures of pacing, where the first five hours of the game are not particularly interactive because they need to introduce a shit ton of stuff. So I'm going to try my absolute best to give a succinct synopsis of the gameplay and story in Persona 4, and I will most likely fail because it's a fucking 95-hour long game. But I guess I'll start with the gameplay elements are sort of... They're divided into two different parts. The, there's a sort of traditional JRPG combat part, and that part is you will end up going into these dungeons, and you have you and three other party members. You have like about seven total members that you can choose from to go with you on your party. You go into these dungeons that'll have about ten levels to them, and you'll wander around. They don't have random battles. You have these like floating shadow balls that you attack, and then you get into turn-based combat, sort of traditional JRPG turn-based combat. But it has a special twist where the persona part of the game is your characters have these personas, which are basically... You can almost sort of like boil it down into they're kind of like Pokemon and how they work in the game, where they're, they're creatures that you summon, and they are what cast spells for you, basically. So, you know, some of them will be good at healing, some of them will be good at uh, lightning. And sort of that's that part of the game is you your main character, uh, who you can name yourself, the, the canonical name is you Narukami, or Narukami you if you want the proper order. But the, the how your character has this special ability where you can have multiple personas and create multiple personas, whereas everyone else only has one. And so you can fuse personas together and get new ones, and it's this very sort of addictive way of... you. That's where all your stats and all your abilities come from, and every time you're like, you never know what you're going to get. You're like, you know, I fucking got Thor. And I stuck with Thor for like two dungeons because he is a badass fucking persona to get. And it's always, you always are really excited to go back and to start fusing more personas just to see like, what crazy fucking monster am I going to get out of this that I can now use in my fights? And so that's sort of like the gameplay side of it is basically you work your way through those dungeons. Also, the uh, way the combat works, it has this very interesting flow to it where, again, kind of similar to Pokemon, where they have elemental strengths and weaknesses, but the enemies that have weaknesses, so if, like, say, I fight a group of enemies and all of them are weak to lightning, if I cast a Mazio spell, which is, like, lightning to all, and it hits all of them, they get knocked down. And when So when an enemy gets hit by an element they're weak to, they get knocked down. And if all the enemies are knocked down during the same turn, you have this thing called an all-out attack, where basically all your guys charge in and can finish them off. So you sort of have, the combat works in this very interesting way where when you first enter a dungeon, you sort of have to be very cautious and sort of test out all of your abilities on the enemies you encounter. And as you learn what their weaknesses are, the combat really starts picking up pace and you can sort of blow through enemies really quickly because you've figured out what all their weaknesses are. And so it has this very rewarding sort of progression through it where, where you're figuring out new enemies' weaknesses and you're figuring out new strategies to beat them. And so you're able to get through combat really quickly once you get good at it. And that's... That's one of the things that it does really well that JRPGs do not do particularly well in general is that the turn-based combat doesn't feel like a chore. It feels very interesting, and it feels like each enemy you fight is very different and requires a different sort of tactic to take them out. But once you do kind of figure out how to take them out, you can get through them really quickly and then thus get to the next part of the story. But then the other half of the gameplay is sort of this 
uh, like sort of the social simulation where when you're not in the dungeons, your character is this high school student, and most of the other characters are high school students. Very sort of anime cliche. You're all students in high school who have a supernatural power. That's like half of anime, like any anime ever made, has that basic premise. But you, you're, you, you're this, you're this high school student, and when you're not going into the dungeons, you walk around and sort of build up your relationships with other characters, and they're called, and those relationships are called social links, and sort of have these like discrete progression levels. And as you level those up, each character is tied to an arcana. So, like, which is, like, a sun arcana or something, which is attached to certain types of persona. So, as you level up your relationship with each character and their arcanas, your ability to create personas of that arcana improves. It's fucking getting crazy. Can I ask you something? Yes. Does it make more sense when you actually sit down and play the game? Mostly. Okay. It's, this is, I want to say, this is what I'm talking about with the pacing. Again, I'm trying to wrap up stuff yeah. you learn about over the course of about 10 hours. And one thing I will say, I don't know if Persona 4 Golden does this better. This is one of the flaws of Persona 4, but it sort of comes from the era of games that when it was made, and I sort of recognize the flaws having played after the fact, is some of the interface stuff, the tutorial stuff, is not as fully fleshed out as it should be. If you're playing this game, and if it's not better in Persona 4 Golden, when you get the ability to fuse... Talk to the characters Igor and Elizabeth and go through all the tutorials because there's like optional tutorials. Fucking talk to them and get that shit or you will have no idea what the fuck you're doing. Okay. So anyways, again, back to this. As you love it. So, so the gist of it is you, what you want to do is you want to develop your relationships with the characters around you, which, which gives you this very nice springboard for like story and character development, but then it feeds back into your gameplay, because as you develop those relationships, your ability to fight and your ability to create personas improves, and it sort of gets into this very addicting mix, because it sort of since all the game is sort of feeds into you wanting to make more and more powerful personas, and so... You're always wanting to improve your social links, so that way, once you go into the dungeon, you find random personas that you can fuse together, that you can make, you know, the most badass fucking persona with, like, a level 10 social link that's, like, 10 levels higher than all your other guys and, like, all the enemies you're fighting. Like, you can fucking break this game if you're really smart with how you use the persona fusing system, but it feels really rewarding when you kind of break the game, because it's like, I am... You can make your character super powerful if you're really smart about how you play it for certain stretches of the game, and that's really rewarding and really fun. So that's sort of the gameplay side of it, the gist of it being the you developing relationships and then going into the combat sections. But then the story side of the game, which is... You know, that's that's really the core of what an RPG should be, and I feel like Atlas, the developers, really understand that, is that it's about story and characters, is that you are, again, you're this high school student, again, another huge fucking cliche in anime, is that you're recently transferred to this new school. Really? Yeah, fucking, if you like, oh, if you watch a lot of anime, I have to imagine, like, it seems like in Japan, you get a fucking transfer student every other day. It's like, yeah. here's this, this, like, robot lady from Spain. Here you go, she's a transfer student. Here's the magician who's from Germany, and you inexplicably speaks perfect fucking Japanese. Here you go. And it's like, you get, but, you know, okay, that sort of cliche aside... It's cliche because I think it works. Oh yeah, I mean that's yeah. just a basic narrative device. Yeah. It, so you're you're Narcomi you if you name him canonically, which I think I like that fucking name. But yeah. you're 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 this transfer student, and while you're transferring there, you sort of discover some of your powers because you talk to Igor, who's this like creepy imp dude who sort of he's what helps allows you to fuse personas and he sort of helps you along the story path. 
Quick question. Yes. You should talk about talking. Is, is this a game with like voice acting or is it all dialogue? Like uh, actually, how the voice acting works is kind of interesting because the, all the main story stuff is voice acted, but it also has... Okay, actually, this is, this is going to be a bit intense, but this is actually something... I'm going to remind you because I was going to forget to talk about it. This game, the English dub in this game is probably the best fucking English dub I have ever seen for a Japanese thing, ever. And one of the, I think one of the is for a very big reason is that they don't have to lip sync because the way the dialogue oh, works is it sort of has text boxes come up and then they have sort of very anime style character portraits with it that sort of will convey emotions for the characters. And then the voice actors act like for the main story scenes, they'll, they'll voice act all the dialogue. And for like a lot of the side scenes, they won't because that would be like a 95 hour long game. They wouldn't even be able to fit it on the disc and that would be those voice actors would be in there for fucking days trying to record all of yeah. that dialogue. But yeah, the dub in this game, there are like... I would think there are no voices that I think don't work. There are, there are some that work a lot better than others. I mean, in like one of them, Kanji, this character, who he's sort of like this biker guy. He's not actually a biker. One of the things in the game is that it's the aspect of Persona is sort of... It delves into psychological issues of what a Persona actually is, is the sort of the face you show off to the other world. So it's, a, it's the game is very concerned with sort of the way society affects your personality and yeah. the way society expects you to, uh, like, be a part of it but and have this sort of whole complete personality that is sort of in sync with how society wants it to be, but obviously that's not how... So, I mean, it actually has this very Lacan view of psychology where you do not have this single, whole, distinct personality that defines who you are as a human being. Is that's what human beings are? Is this, like, one unified thing? You have various different aspects of, like, what defines you as a person, like, things you like, and aspects of your personality. There's not, like, one full, like, unified whole being in you. There are, like, different types of you, almost. It's kind of kind of it's hard to really get into that. But the game sort of embraces that view of psychology where you don't need to have this sort of outward facing this is what I am, this is what I need to show to the world, this is what society will accept. And you don't need to sort of suppress those other parts of you. You need to kind of embrace them. And that's what that's what persona, like the concept itself, is really about. And so there's one character, Kanji, who he's sort of this he looks like he's this biker guy, and he looks like he's this really tough dude, and he is a really tough dude, but he's also really into sewing. So it's sort of, and so and a lot of people think he's gay, and he sort of has this complex around that. And the voice actor who plays Kanji is the fucking best voice actor for any Japanese thing I've ever seen. The guy is just every single line he delivers is fucking golden. And and one thing to say about the dialogue in this game: this game is fucking hilarious. This is a goddamn funny game, and. One of the things about the writing of this game that is something I've never encountered in, like, anything else is that, you know, you know me. I am a cynical, snarky asshole. So, when really, I, Sean? Yeah. So when I, you know, when I watch movies or TV shows or when I play games, I will make cynical, snarky comments. If I'm with people, I'll make them out loud. If I'm with myself, I'll just, like, kind of, like, make little jokes in my head that's sort of, like, sort of mystery science theater riff style when I'm playing stuff because I'm a cynical, snarky asshole. But the amazing thing about Persona is... Fucking, the game will constantly, I will make a snarky comment in my head, then I will press the X button, and then a character will make that fucking snarky comment. Like, it is, it, the game is, like, inside your head. It is fucking, it's ridiculous. And it, it, it's something, I, I've never had that experience with something else where the game feels very conscious of sort of what it's doing and sort of yeah. the way, especially sort of the way teenagers talk and, like, there are a lot of instances where you would not expect the game to understand the sexual innuendo it is making, particularly because it's a Japanese translation. 
the game fucking gets it, and the game will make a joke about it. Just press X, and you will see. And it's sort of it's a really it's a really interesting experience because you don't. I don't know, it's like I've never had that before. I've never had a game use my own snark, and that's that's sort of really surprising. Yeah. But anyways, getting back to actually the the story setup is okay. High school, you transfer high school student, you right. move to this new town. It's Enabla. It's sort of this backwater town that you know. Sort of they they make a, they sort of make a lot of jokes and. It's kind of important that the game is that the town they're in sort of segregated from like the major population centers in Japan, and you meet all these other high school students. And when you move there, these murders occur. There are two different murders that happen, and they have to do with this is this is going to start sounding really fucking ridiculous now. They have to do with this alternate dimension that exists inside of TVs, and that is you you discover that you, part of your relationship with you having personas has to do with your ability to go into this TV dimension. It's not a TV dimension, but you the way you access it is through TVs, which sort of, the, that aspect of the game sort of is trying to make commentary on how entertainment affects your society's perception of people, and it sort of really gets deep into that side of it. Like, this is actually a really fucking intelligent game. Like, this is a game you could write yeah. essays on in how it dissects uh, psychology. But you, you sort of go into this TV world, and you discover that how these murders are occurring is that people are throwing other people into this TV world and the TV world is inhabited with shadows which are sort of again using psychological terms they're suppressed aspects of your ego that sort of manifest in this alternate dimension as monsters and if you overcome your suppressed ego in that world that is what allows you to give persona because you sort of are able to accept your own personality and accept your persona and so that that's kind of how all that stuff works and how the murders are occurring is that someone's throwing the people into the TV world and their shadows are killing them because they obviously don't have your their personas and you are like one of the only, you're the actually the only person who has a persona without having accepted their shadow. And that's sort of part of what's special about you. So you're able to fight the shadows for the first time and get your teammates their personas that way. And so you're obviously the only people who can solve this crazy TV murder bullshit. So you start slowly saving people who are getting thrown into the TV from being killed by their shadows, and then they will join your investigation team to try to find out who the killer is. And that's sort of how the plot moves on. And it actually, like, when I started doing that, I was like, oh, God, because I know this game is, like, 90 hours long. How are they going to sustain a murder mystery plot for 90 hours long? They do it by making it fucking complex. Like, there are, this is not going to spoil anything. There are, like, four different culprits, I think, at various times. And, it's a, and actually, one of the most frustrating things about the game is that I have watched a lot of fucking Law and & Order and stuff like that, or at least I used to. Like, I was really into police procedurals and sort of that kind of thing. You know, L.A. Noir was my favorite game of last year because I fucking love that genre. And so I'm really into these kinds of stories, and so I know a lot of the tropes, so I'm able to sort of, you know, get ahead of the plot in certain places because of my familiarity with the genre. And it can get a little bit annoying when I'm ahead of where the character's at because it's like... Guys, this one's a copycat murder. For fuck's sake, can I just give me? Can I yeah. just? Can I just please let me say that is like there was like that one little stretch of the game where I was like, oh god, they can't fucking figure it out. But then it is really rewarding where the game does actually give you. I'm not even sure how this works because I made the right choices every single time, but the game does give you these options of where like you actually will get to say it's like, no, this one's a copycat murder. Once you have enough evidence for the game to have assumed you could have deduced it, like the game will. Maybe not enough, like you can get ahead of the plot, but the game will 
allow you to make a lot of the deductions and you to push the plot forward by giving you various yeah. options to choose from and you're like, you have to pick the right one. And the game is actually pretty smart about that in a lot of places where that could have gotten a lot more frustrating than it actually was. But yeah, the, the whole plot is super fucking complicated. There are multiple cul- culprits, but it is very interesting because they take it in a lot of very interesting directions and they play with this concept of the psychology and the persona aspect of it. And sort of, as I said before, one, like, I would say my only, like, real big complaint with the game is it, the very, very end of it where it has, it has three different endings. It has a bad ending and the bad ending is the super fucked, like, fucked up place if you get the bad ending. And it has a good ending, which is just sort of a normal ending. Although, if you do get the good ending and you know what happens to the true ending, you know that the world's fucked anyway because you didn't get the true ending. And then there's the actual true ending of the game. And if you're playing this game, once you're getting pretty far into it, like once you have all of your teammates, look at a fact, like a non-spoiler fact, to see how you get the true ending because you have to get the true ending to the game. It's a whole other dungeon to boss. It's like what actually is happening. And that gets a bit too much into the teenagers saving the world by fighting a god even if they do justify it a lot better than it's i've ever seen it been justified before it's like the very premise of it i think is kind of a poor aspect of storytelling but but even saying that i have to say they make very good use of custom animations in this game and there's a custom animation like the way your guy finishes off the boss is fucking cool as shit and yeah that's there's actually a lot of instances in the game where you get so, because the game is so long, you get so used to seeing the same, like, rote, normal animations that when they just, like, will pop out a custom animation in one of, like, their little cutscene sections, it's fucking hilarious. There are nice. some really, really good moments in there. Again, the voice acting is great. The fucking music is really awesome. It's got this really, it's, I wouldn't really quite call it J-pop. It is, like, it's, all the music is done, is composed by Shoji Meguro, and it's, there are a lot of, like, fully voiced, like, lyrical songs in the game that are really, really good and really fucking catchy. And, like, they will get stuck in your head constantly because you will hear them all the time, but in, like, a really good way. Like the Pokemon Christmas Bash? Exactly. Only, no. <laughs> but, but one of the great things about the fucking songs is that, for some reason, all the lyrics are in English, but they're, you know, it's a Japanese guy writing English lyrics and then a really talented Japanese singer, female singer singing those lyrics, and those lyrics are fucking nonsense. Like, it's really hard to understand them when you're listening to them, and then when you look them up, it's like, that means, you, that means nothing. That, other than one song, you get this one song called Heaven that plays in this one dungeon that sort of, the lyrics in that song are actually really fucking good and really fucking sad because it ties into, this is another game that almost made me cry this year. This game has the saddest the saddest fucking thing happens in this game that I've never seen something sadder happen in a game, ever. I don't want to spoil what it is, but it is fucking depressing as shit. And the, the Heaven song sort of ties into what happens to this character that's so sad, sort of reveals that character's sort of, like, hidden personality that you didn't know about. And those, like that song is really, really powerful if you look at the lyrics and sort of, like, see what the song's actually talking about. But, yeah, this game fucking, like has devoured my life. I'm also playing Persona 3, like I'm playing them in reverse order. Persona 3 is also really good, not quite as good, but super fucking long also. And this is just a game that you need to... Okay, I'm going to start giving advice again for if you're going to play this game. Important thing, the first time you play this game, this is the most important thing if you're going to play this game, the very first time you play it, 
you have to make sure you have like a good three or so hours free to get through the beginning of the game because the beginning of the game is almost all just you going through dialogue and story setup. It's again, that is absolutely necessary because the story they tell is very, very long and the gameplay aspects of it are super, super complex. So all of that stuff is absolutely necessary, but you need to make sure you have a long stretch of time to play the game because I actually think Persona 4 The Golden, from what I've heard, is better about this. They put more save points in, but the game does have a very PS2 era. You have to get to save points, and so... Like and that you have discrete save points that you need to get to the game, so you need to make sure you have a good stretch of time when you start playing the game, and you and then you will get into the flow of like understanding. You need a good, a still a good stretch of time every time you sit down to play it. But the very beginning, it, that's super important. It's also again, yeah, super important when you get pretty far into it. You have to get the true ending. It's like, and then you can also inadv- like inadvertently get the bad ending if you're not careful about how you do it. So you might want to. Maybe look to be able to avoid that too. And then, yeah, talk to Igor and Margaret to make sure you understand how the Persona stuff works. And then also, don't don't think the game is too com- like more complex than it actually is. Like Because it will seem kind of staggering to you at a certain point once you get into your first dungeon, the amount of stuff there is for you to do. Because, wow, did I not even talk about this yet? Another key aspect of the game is that the game sort of takes place with a time management system where you have certain, you only have like a certain amount of activities you can do each day. So like you really need to spread your time between managing, going into dungeons, managing your relationships with people, building up your social stats, like knowledge and courage and stuff like that so that you can do various things. And they, they use those stats to sort of get your progress in, uh, for uh, different social links. And so you need to manage your time really intelligently and that sort of, it, the game puts a lot of pressure on you that way, and just don't get stressed out. I would say don't play this game with a fact, only use the fact to try to find the true ending, and just, like, just play the game. Don't let the game get you too stressed out about trying to manage your time. Don't try to sort of, like, min-max it and sort of, like, you're not going to be able to get every single social link on your first playthrough. That's just never going to happen. Just... Get the social links you want to get because of the characters you like and you want to find out more about them and just play the game. And so just, don't play be, the, just play it. Just play it, yeah, yeah. Don't get stressed about it and don't try to get obsessive about trying to like do everything perfectly because you're, you're going to make mistakes on your first playthrough and it's totally fine. That's and good you're to going, And you're going to want... It's like, and it's never going to be... A good thing about the game is that you never can like sort of fuck up to the point where you're just kind of, like, screwed. Like, you know, you're never going to be so under-leveled that you're going to have to grind a lot. And you're never going to be able to get so behind on social links that your personas won't be powerful enough. Like, even if you are a shitty fucking player at the game, you will be able to finish it, and it's not going to, like... The game's not going to, like, just destroy you as a human being. Which JRPGs can be a very unforgiving genre in that way. Oh, yeah. This game is definitely not like that. Just, like, have fun with the game and let yourself have fun with the game and don't get stressed out about it. Sounds good. Yes. This, so, that so are you is, done talking about Persona Four? I, I, dude, I don't. I want to. It's like I could talk about this game fucking forever. This we probably should have just done a separate podcast for you because I think you've taken over our best of 2012 yeah, and made it maybe. about a game from 2008. Well, okay. So this is WGTC Radio's 2012 game of 2008. And then Persona Four: <laughs> The Golden is also our game of 2012. I'll tell you, kind of our zero game. You've. Yeah, yeah goddamn, this game is so fucking good, man. It has no, no, that's it has fucking absorbed my life. And, and you've talked... I mean, obviously, Sean and I are friends. I've heard everything he had to say here like eight different times. And that's, yeah. that's, that's fine because it makes me interested in the game. And I've honestly started considering buying a PlayStation Vita just 
Partially because I want it for some other things, but also this game sounds so good. So fucking good, man. I, I don't have $300 to buy all those things right yeah, now. but I know. Like, I, man, I fucking played the game. I'm on my new game plus playthrough so I can get all the social links because it allows you to carry through your uh, social stats so you can, like, burn through that shit really quickly so you can get all of them. And even I'm still like, oh, maybe I should get Persona 4 Golden too. Because yeah. then I should say, like, again, I've looked at the list of all the stuff that's in Persona 4 Golden, and there's a shit ton of extra content. So if you're looking to get the game new, and you have, and you're, like, willing to either pay money for the PS Vita or you have a PS Vita, get Persona 4 the Golden. And I'll tell you, I... The more I, I know this is kind of a tangent, but the more I read about the Vita, the more I see that's a pretty impressive piece yeah, of hardware. Yeah, I know, right? Like, Especially since I have a PS3. I don't mm-hmm. use it much, but I feel like if I bought a Vita and started using my PS3 more, that would be that would be a really good investment. Yeah, no, the PS Vita is something I, I did seriously look at. That's like I'm like what's kind of holding me back is that I don't I personally don't like handheld consoles, and so that's yeah. why I haven't like but it's so made that jump, but I got pretty close to it. And, and not just for pretty, Persona 4 Golden. Yeah, it's got a pretty big screen, though, and it's like yeah. it's got real console controls. Yeah. It's got real console graphics. I assume, I mean, the sound, you can use headphones and stuff, so whatever. Yeah. But, yeah. No, I understand. It's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Man, dude, this game. It's fucking it's it's it the game changes you. Like it like it becomes a part of your life because you play it for so long. And because the characters Okay, fuck. I, this is another thing I was wanted to mention that I forgot to say. This will be the last thing I say because this is a good way to end off with this game. Is that I want to go back in time and kind of talk about the social links a bit. Because the way the social links work is that some of them are not that interesting, but most of them are really, really interesting and sort of take you to really fascinating places and sort of explore characters that you wouldn't normally look at and sort of like dilemmas that you wouldn't normally think about. And most of the social links, okay, all of the social links deal with these very emotional issues. And these characters tend to be going through a lot of different, like, traumas. And there is sort of this, an emotional trauma for everybody in this game, is the way I like to think about it, where there's, there is a character in here that is going through something that everybody has had to go through. And probably for most of them, multiple people have gone through these kinds of very similar issues. It's like, they're, you know, if you have... Like like any multitude of issues with your parents, an issue with your sibling, an issue with uh, moving to a new town and not knowing anybody. You know, if you have issues with being a tomboy, if you have issues with people thinking you're gay, if you have issues with think of people thinking you're lesbian or like people thinking you're transgendered. Like there's like or you being transgender, trying to deal with you being transgendered, you trying to be dealing with you being gay, dealing with like your parents having abandoned you. Um, let's see, what, what are some of the other, like, when one is your sibling has died, one is you've lost track of, like, where you are with your job and you don't feel like you're doing what you wanted to do anymore. It's like, there's, and one is you're sort of going into, you help out this character who's going into high school. There's, there's one who he's, you're one of the fathers is that you sort of get in a social link with is he's this cop and he's way overworked and he can't connect with his daughter anymore. And so there's all these people are dealing with these very emotional issues. And this game is super therapeutic because you as a character help them through those issues. And like, they all kind of have this nice arc where it starts out kind of okay. Then you start seeing there's like their mask sort of starts to fall apart and you see there's stuff going on with these characters that you didn't realize before that it like it gets into this really dark place where those that character's really depressed and then you sort of help them get through it and the game's really fucking therapeutic that way and it's really interesting and I think one of my favorite social links is there's this one it's the young mother social link where you work at this daycare and you meet this child who has this uh, stepmother 
And the stepmother is, she, like, recently married this guy and moved to this town, and the guy is off on this, like, really long business trip. And so the guy really comes across as being really skeezy, and the woman sort of feels like she made a mistake in marrying this guy. And so she's this newlywed wife who has to take care of this six-year-old kid who she basically just met, like, two months ago, and living in this small town she's never been to before for six months. And that situation, she's so fucking depressing, and, like... Point like I've never seen a character sort of go through that kind of situation before, being so detached from everything in their life and sort of having to raise this kid they don't know, and the kid kind of is really kind of hates them. And you sort of and normally you'd be on the kid side, like you'd be helping the kid through that. But you're talking to this mother, and like this mother sort of doesn't know what to do, and like that social link is so fucking interesting because that I've never seen a character like that before, and dealing with that kind of issue before, and like. Just the situation she's in to me seems like so fucking terrifying because you're completely alone and having and have this massive burden of responsibility towards a person, this child that you have never you haven't known, and there's no good reason, really realistically, why you have this burden of responsibility. And so there are a bunch of characters like that, and you, and the game is just super therapeutic about it, and it's so well written, and it really the game is really smart and understands what it's doing. And when you start playing it, you don't think it's going to be as smart as it is. This game is smarter than you. And sort of, <laughs> that's what's really great about it. That this game yeah. understands humanity in a way that most pieces of fiction don't. And that's what's great about this game. So there we go. That's, that is my spiel on Persona 4. WGTC Radio's 2012 game of 2008. Yep. Fucking play it. Alright. Well, we talked about video games for a long-ass time. Uh, well, you know... We talked about some long-ass video games. We did. So, to finish off our 2012 retrospective, I just published over at my personal blog. I did not publish this for We Got This Covered. Uh, it's my top 10 TV shows of 2012. And I usually try to do a top 10 TV shows list because I like to watch TV. I, I watch quite a few shows. And this year I did not get to write about TV as much as I normally do. And I feel kind of bad about that because I... I often feel that TV is eclipsing cinema. I, I kind of agree with you. And yeah. it's, I mean... And as, it, as it wakes up to the nature of its serialized format and really takes advantage yeah, of it. Yeah, I mean, we're all, we've already been through sort of the golden age of TV drama, and it's still evolving past what that golden age was, where, like, maybe the highs of having things like The Sopranos, The Wire, and Deadwood all on at the exact same time, maybe we don't have that concentration of masterpieces, but there's just good TV everywhere. I mean, yeah. I didn't... I watch a lot of TV. I didn't watch a sliver of everything there is to watch. Mm-hmm. I think I see. All, I, I watch all the really good stuff. I feel like, but I mean, man, there's just there's a lot out there, and I feel like for really smart, intelligent, enriching drama and comedy, TV's doing it better than film at this point. And I think 2012 kind of proved that to me because I thought 2012 was the best year for reviewing movies I've ever done. I've been reviewing movies regularly since 2004. This was my favorite year to do that. It was there's so many good movies. But when I sat down and made my top 10 TV shows list, I realized, even though I didn't get around to as much TV as I always like to, I enjoyed TV more this year. And I think that, to me, really says it more than anything. And, you know, who knows? One day, maybe I'll switch and just write about TV. But there's so much good TV stuff. And especially my top three or four shows this year were better than anything I saw in a theater, especially my number one. So we're going to talk about these. There's a couple that Sean saw, or one or two, that we've... Wanted to talk about for a while, and we'll do a <laughs> yeah. little mini discussion of here. We'll get into that. We'll go from number 10 to 1. Number 10 is 
uh, a perennial standby on my TV top ten lists because this show speaks to me. It's community, uh, NBC's comedy community, and you know you were just describing in Persona Four how it's like it's got all sorts of types of people who you can kind of connect with and get catharsis out of. Yeah, that's kind of what community does for TV. I mean, obviously you can't do it on the level of a ninety-five hour video game. Yeah. But, man, I mean, community just... These seven people in the study group, and then some of the other cast members outside of it, they just reflect so many different kind of walks of life and perspectives and philosophies. And even though it's a very, very funny show, it's also so character-driven, and the characters are so fascinating, and just the show kind of speaks to me, especially with some of its characters. Like, Abed, I have never related to a character more in TV, film, literature, gaming, anything. Abed is just, like... That's a character that no one has ever really, like, nailed down before because he's a hard character to do, but he feels really accurate. Someone who's kind of made their whole life around, like, TV and film, and really that's what they understand more than yeah. the real world, and the real world is kind of confusing, and just, like, yeah. Abed... those characters tend to, like, be really horribly cliched and not... And Abed... It's like, they make those characters the same way they try to, like, show people playing video games and TV. Like, yeah. it's, like, the same thing. And Abed just... Abed's a great character, and I think... Uh, my opinion on actually the episodes of Community that aired this year, because only 12 episodes aired this year, the last half of season three, it was way back in the spring, and it was not a perfect run, but I actually think it was one of my favorite just runs of episodes the show has ever done, because it got darker, it got more experimental, and it kind of went even deeper than ever before into the neuroses of the characters. And in particular, sort of the picture I have on the site is from the episode Virtual Systems Analysis, which is an entire half hour in Abed's Dreamatorium, which he has built with his friend Troy, which is like, it's supposed to look like the uh, holodeck on the Starship Enterprise, and yeah. they just imagine fun things to do in there. And in this episode, it's Annie, who's my other favorite character on the show, played by Alison Breed, goes in there with Abed just to hang out one day, and winds up kind of going into the dark recesses of Abed's mind, and they're imagining all these scenarios from school and sort of analyzing each character from the show, but just between the two of them. And so, like, the other actors appear in, like, the dream sequences, but it's yeah. all basically Annie and Abed's reading of them, but it ultimately gets really deep into Abed's mind, and it's just a brilliant half hour of television. Probably my favorite from this season, even though the season also had a really good episode last year called Remedial Chaos Theory, where they visited seven different timelines. That's... This, this show is community is like the only comedy that's also kind of science fiction at times it's yeah. very interesting it's but, like I know you're going to hate this but I kind of wish this show would end so that I can feel justified in watching it because like I can't watch TV when a show's still on air because I, I just hit this roadblock Sean I wish it was over you do? and you, you want to know why because why? season 3 had a perfect fucking ending and that's what I was going to get to is that, I mean, I, I'll, I, I guess I don't have any much more to say about virtual systems analysis. Just that, like I said, it's just a really good character episode where it analyzes character differently than any other show on television. Hmm. And it just, the season had a rocky patch, not a rocky patch, there were some rocky ideas here and there. And I think the penultimate episode of the season was a little weak because it did some weird things with this character Chang who's always been kind of superfluous and they've never quite known what to do with him. But then the finale was a really good, like, just grounded finale about all the characters and brought them to a point where I don't I don't even quite know what the show would be in, like, the next season. Like, it's just, it's a really good ending. And mm. it's like, that's okay, good. Three se- I, don't, I don't need a show to go on forever. A three good seasons of TV, I'm perfect yeah. with that. Ooh, that's fine. And it's three good seasons. And the sad thing that happened with Community this year is the creator of the show, Dan Harmon, who's also the showrunner, was fired after season three finished. And that's why I don't want to see more community. I mean, 
I'm trying to, like, a good example, that would be, like, kicking Matthew Weiner off Mad Men or something. Or, not to the same degree, but kicking Louie off of Louie. I mean, it's like... Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you can't just kill, he's, he does everything and Louie's just like... Right. But it's, it's that similar... I know. Not not to that degree. That, that should be an episode of Louie. Like, that's how Louie should end, is it, like, completely goes out of the show, and it just shows Louis C.K. being fired from making Louie. That's how that show needs to fucking end. Right. It's obviously Dan Harmon and Community is not that level, but this is... Every episode of Community, even the ones he doesn't write, and he doesn't write most of them himself, but it's his voice. I mean, it's his view on the world. Abed is him, he always says, and that's why he can write Abed so well. And I don't really care about seeing a community that is not made by the guy who started it, you know? It's it's just, it doesn't, I don't really care about that. And if it's, it comes back in February, if it's good, I'll give it a shot. I mean, I'll give it a shot no matter what. And if yeah. it's good, I'll keep watching it. If not, I can always pretend it ends at season three. Because you know what? If the creator's left, it's easy to pretend that. Yeah. And so, so I'll wait. I'll hear whether or not you think season four is bullshit. And if you think it's bullshit, I'll just watch season yeah. all the way. Through all seasons, and then I'll be done. I'll just send yeah. the shows. That's it. Yeah. Okay, I mean, that's you, good. Would, you wouldn't, if someone told you, all right, last episode of season three, this is the finale forever, you wouldn't bat an eyelash. It's like, yeah, of course it's the finale forever. It's not like all the characters die. It's just like they get to a point where, okay, that feels like yeah. we're done. And it's really good. But anyway, I think this, this run of community was great. And. Uh, you know, I, I flirted with putting it higher, and I think just because, A, so little of it aired, and B, it did have a couple of notable rough spots here and there, but I mean, this this is the year that gave us the great two-part Ken Burns-style blanket fort mockumentary, where Troy and Abed create rival blanket forts and have this kind of war, but it's all done in a Ken Burns-style, like the Civil War documentaries. Yeah. That's great. They have a Law & Order parody, which you would love, because it's just ding, fucking... Ding. Yeah, it's fucking spot on. It's great. And it's really funny, and then there's this this whole episode that's done as an 8-bit video game that's hilarious, but also really touching and poignant, because it deals with, again, some character issues. And then there were a lot of really good grounded installments, which Community hadn't done in a while, that I liked. There's Shirley's Wedding episode, the season finale I mentioned. Virtual Systems Analysis is a little bit of everything, and it's, it's amazing. So this was a really good run, and, and it's at number 10. I, again, I, I could put it higher, I, you know, I wouldn't, I would, it would be long on the list no matter what. It has to be on here, but it's, it was a really good final stretch for sort of Community 1.0. And we'll see, we'll see how it goes forward. I think some of these characters could be written for really easily with other writers, um, but I don't know how anyone else can write Abed, for instance, and I'm worried he'll become what you were just describing. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, honestly, the direction I would go, and they've already made the entire season, so who knows, yeah. but uh, I, I would honestly just reorient the show around Annie because I think she's probably an easier character to write for, and she's one of the best already, and she's not so wacky and out there that you have to kind of be a crazy person to do it so but we'll see i i'm if it's i mean the cast is still there and they're really good they got the sets and everything it's just you know it's gonna have some of the core elements and some of the writers stuck around although most of them left with dan Harmon because they didn't want to betray their boss yeah but we'll see community was good number nine is game of thrones this is the second season Game of Thrones was number three on my list last year, so it fell quite a bit. That is partially because some of my favorite shows came back, and some new shows started that were really good. But it's also Game of Thrones Season 2 was a noticeable step down from Season 1, and most of that is just that the source material, Book 2 of Song of Ice and Fire, is not nearly as good as Book 1 of Song of Ice and Fire. That'll do it. That'll do it. And also, it, the, the show, the story gets got so big... 
and it had so many characters and plot threads this year, and there were just growing pains from the creators trying to figure out how to service it all in a TV show, or just with just ten episodes. Yeah. And so sometimes the storytelling was a little too diffuse, where you'd get like one scene per character per episode, and it would feel like nothing happened, because nothing really did happen. Yeah. And some of the characters were stuck in really dumb narrative dead ends, like Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen. So that was all a little disappointing. But Game of Thrones is still a really good show. It's a great show at times. It's got... A phenomenal cast. Peter Dinklage's Tyrion is awesome. He got way more to do this year. He was great. There's got just great supporting performances from Lena Headey and Maisie Williams and Jack Gleason and Alfie Allen and all these other people who, if I would name the whole cast, it would go on forever. This is the year that gave us the penultimate episode, Blackwater, which was basically the epic, like, Helm's Deep-style battle for television, unlike anything that's ever aired on TV before. It was just wild. Lots and lots of good stuff. It's still a really fun show to watch. I had so much fun watching it week to week, even if it was frustrating at times where the story went, and even though the finale was not a very satisfying finale for like TV, because it feels like you get to the end and it's sort of like, well, what happened? And season one very much had a lots of stuff happen. Season two kind of didn't go in circles, but they're still kind of putting pieces in play. And as I understand it, book three is the best one, and it's where everything takes off, because they've put everything into place, and now they get to start really playing with it. And, I mean, it's so big, I guess, they're doing two seasons out of book three alone. Hmm. So, so yeah. So i have to wait a while till it's done so that yeah. I can get around to watching it. Well, it's, uh. it's, it's, Game of Thrones is an interesting case where I don't know where the show is ultimately going to end up. Because George R. R. Martin has not finished the books yet, and he's notoriously slow at writing his books. He's written five, he's planned seven. There's no indication the sixth is even on its way. And it'll take them a while to get through these five books, obviously. And who knows, maybe they will just decide at a certain point there's a good end point and they'll cut it off before the books end. Or they could do the Dexter thing where it's like, fuck it, we're just going to make our own show now. Like, we yeah. started based on the book, it's like, eh, let's do our own thing. Yeah. Well, and Game of Thrones, as I understand it, has always been much closer to its source material than, like, Dexter or True Blood yeah, or some of the others have been. Closer yeah, closer to source material at all. So, in any case, Game of Thrones is good. Season 2 was a step down from Season 1. It's still one of the best shows on TV. But this is definitely a show, Sean, where I can understand your, like... Instinct to just wait until it's done. Yeah, I just like that's how I have to watch TV now because yeah. every time I try to watch a show while it's going, I'll just end up losing track of it and be like, oh fuck, now I'm going to have to wait until it's done and then rewatch everything I've already watched and then watch what I haven't. Yeah. So, number like eight. What I did with Breaking I fucked up with Breaking Bad now. I have to wait for season five to completely finish. Yeah, well, you know, I have my Apple TV right over here. It's got them all on there if you want to watch it. I have to wait. I have to, because then I'll be like, I might just end up not finishing when they actually finish the show. Like, okay. It's, that's what happened with Lost, also. Yeah. It's like, it's a, it's, a bad, it's a bad situation. All right. I'm bad with TV. So, number eight. And these are technically two different shows, but is it fair to put them it, in a tie? I don't even know if I'd say they're technically two different shows. They feel like this. they're like so closely related to each other that I yeah. feel justified in calling them one okay. show. This is The Daily Show and The Colbert Report on Comedy Central. In years past, I've put this at sort of the honorary number ten slot because it's so different from other shows on the list. It's not narrative. It's not fictional. Yeah. But... They had really good years. Yeah. This was a really good year for Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert. And it's not just because it was a ridiculous election year. I just think... Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, this was the only way I got through the election year was watching... Yeah, me too. Talk, like, talking about something that's therapeutic, Jesus Christ, this, this really yeah. helped out with all the bullshit around the election. Oh, absolutely. Because the other thing is, as the election got more and more ridiculous, conventional news got kind of worse and worse. Yeah. And Jon Stewart again, kind of proved he's one of the better journalists out there, even mm -hmm. though he does it through the through comedy. Yeah. 
he can call people on their bullshit and without being hostile in ways no one else can. And he's just really good. He's just the serious and thoughtful points he makes every night are great. And Colbert is even more impressive in some ways because it's all satire, it's all character performance. But because he operates in character, he gets to be way more scathing than Jon Stewart is. And he, boy, did he really make some points that hit home this year. Mm -hmm. And just, he he could be really silly, and he would do the weeks like his Hobbit week when Hobbit came out, or his week of all his concert performances, Steve Fest, Colbert, Yeah. But he also, yeah. But I mean, again, sort of more of his Colbert super pack and his stuff talking about the super pack stuff was amazing. Yeah, just brilliant. And just so much, so much good stuff this year. And here's the crazy thing. They make way more episodes a year than any other show on this list. Mm-hmm. And I, there were only a handful of disappointing ones. They n- almost never have off nights. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's just amazing. I watch every episode, and this year more than any other year, I felt like if I missed a week, I had to sit down and just like, all right, tonight I'm watching a week of Daily Shows. Yeah, I agree. Like that's, had to do it. Yeah, yeah, like Daily Show and The Colbert Report tend to be ones that I'll just like usually just be like, you know, if I have nothing to do right now, it's like, fuck, I'll just watch one of those episodes. This year, I felt like, yeah, I need to keep up with it because because of all the stuff of the election. It's like there was always so much good material, and like you could, and that was where you could feel like you could go for for some really weirdly thoughtful dissection of what's actually going on, particularly yes. for the Daily Show. And so, you know, it that worked really well, and it was, yeah. you know, great and you, this year. And I have to combine them because I always watch them together. Yeah, I mean, exactly. yeah, me too. I don't watch them on, like live on TV, but I usually watch them on Hulu or something. But mm-hmm. you know, there's like I watch a Daily Show, then I watch a Colbert, or yeah. vice versa. So they're great. And they complement each other surprisingly well, despite the fact that they have very different approaches to how they do yeah. things. I mean, Colbert is a cartoon character. I mean, yeah, it's it's complete satire. It's some of the most effective satire I think that's ever been done. Absolutely. It's and really impressive. It's, it's crazy that he doesn't, like, he hasn't burnt out yet. He's been doing this for years. Yeah, I know. It seems like something that you'd be able to do for, like, a year, and then it's like, I can't manage to keep on doing this. Yeah. It seems like it'd be so fucking hard to do that. And I think the key to why Colbert works is that Colbert is not a monster like some of the people he satirizes. He's sort of like a puppy dog who doesn't quite know what he's doing. Yeah. And so he's always, his like, the horrible things he says are always kind of cute or something. Yeah. They're like funny and lighthearted. So I think that's the key to making the character work long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he, if he says something horrible, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. So he's, yeah. just, he's just like parroting Rush Limbaugh or something. Yeah. It's, yeah. So it works. Number seven is Sherlock. And Sherlock, uh, you know, if you don't know, this is the BBC series, uh, the modern reinterpretation of Sherlock Holmes by Stephen Moffat and yeah. Mark Gaddis. It airs three episodes a season. They're each 90 minutes. And it, it, its last season aired in 2010, so it took 2011 off, back in 2012. And at the very beginning of 2012, I watched episode one when it aired. Uh, then I decided I wanted to wait for like the, the Blu-ray set to come out and just watch it all. So I did, and I bought the Blu-rays in May. And then I didn't watch episode two until like September of this year. <laughs> yeah. And then I was going to watch episode three like the next night, and wound up getting to it last night. So, I, I watched Sherlock season 3 over the longest fucking stretch of time, and it's crazy to me. Yeah. And, and what kills me about this is that this and Doctor Who are like the only two TV shows that I watched where it's like, I watch the episode when it comes out, and, and like, that's it. Those, and, and you fucking asshole, it's like the one other TV show that we both really like that I am actually keeping up with, you didn't fucking watch. So it's like, and it had a huge cliffhanger at the end of the season finale that... 
I've wanted to talk about with you so fucking bad. And I was always like, come on, you have to fucking watch the end of Sherlock. Like, we weren't even in, the, like, we were moving into this condo when I started talking about it with you. That's yeah. how long ago it was. It's like, finally now. And now that you watch it, it's like, I'm trying so hard to remember what the fuck happened because it's been like a goddamn year. Yeah. So let's talk about the show itself, though. I, um... I personally feel, and I know most people don't feel the same way, I actually do not think this was a step up over season one. In some ways, I I did like season one more, because I think it felt like a more cohesive three-episode arc. Yeah, and there's, I agree with that. Yeah, and there's some other things about it. Like, I actually liked the season one episode two more than the season two episode two. It's a very small like difference. I think they're both great. It's just... That's sort of I, my, like, I just didn't really care for much for season one episode. And I know a lot of people didn't. I, I just liked it, and I think I liked how much it sort of worked with the characters. But And this one did, too. I mean, it was I, I love Hounds of the Baskervilles, one of my favorite books. Yeah. Very smart reimagining. It's great. Lots of great direction. In any case, what Sherlock did this year, though, is I think it, it pushed... I think it became bolder and more audacious. I mean, yeah, I'll agree. When you got episode one, and they take Irene Adler and make her a dominatrix, mm-hmm. I don't think they would have been that quite that bold in season one, but everyone loves season one so much, they're like, all right, fuck it, we can go full throttle. Yeah. Irene Adler, she's a dominatrix. Well, of course she would be a dominatrix yeah. in modern times. It makes perfect sense. And that feels like, this is what Sherlock season two did so fucking well, is every dis- creative decision they made was the right one to modernize Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I felt the same about the season one, but particularly this one, mostly because season two adapted a lot of, like, the more high-profile stories that everybody yes. sort of vaguely knows about for Sherlock Holmes and ones that I really, really love. And yeah. they made... Because they're, like... They're adaptations, but they do so much new with it that it's, like, it is its own story, but you see everything they got from the source material, and it's sort of... And as a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes, that's, like, a really interesting part of watching the show is sort of seeing where their ideas come from and how they adapt the source material in this really interesting way. I mean, that's, yeah, that's one of the greatest pleasures of watching this is like, ooh, I see that this episode has the word Reichenbach in the title. I know a final problem, but this is completely different. But here's some little things here that are the same. How are they going to recontextualize this? Or, oh, we're at the Hounds of the Baskervilles. Well, I know who is the villain in Hounds of the Baskervilles. This is the equivalent, but that doesn't really... Are they doing that? Wait, no, they aren't. Maybe it's just, it's... yeah. And really smart how they adapt the stories. And the best episode they have ever done, by a wide margin, is the premiere this year, A Scandal in Belgravia. Yeah, which, I agree. If that had been released as a theatrical film, it would be on my top ten list this year. It's unbelievably good. It's so fucking riveting. It's, it's just great. And that, to me, is the best example of how they recontextualize stuff. Hmm. Not just because of how they do Irene Adler, but how they handle Sherlock and his connection to women and to romance in a modern context. Yeah while actually getting pretty deep into what Conan Doyle was saying about the character hundreds of years ago. Yeah. And just so well done. And the acting by Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman is out of this world. It gets better with every episode. Martin Freeman in particular, you cannot watch some of the final scenes in the finale without getting a little Mm misty-eyed. Even if you feel like some of the things... I do feel some of the things they did to get them to that point was narratively contrived. Not bad, but just a little contrived. But they sell it so well, Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. Uh, Benedict Cumberbatch has just some amazing moments this year, especially in the finale. The the deeper, and and this is what amazes me, is the deeper they go into making the show and the deeper they go into the characters, they actually kind of get further and further back to what Conan Doyle thought about them and how he would characterize them. Yeah, I agree. Like, yeah, it's just... 
I think one of the most interesting things, one of the things I really love about the show, is that it's not. And one, and the reason why I'm able to watch it episode to episode is that each episode is like the 90 minute. It's like a movie, basically. It's and that's it's such a fulfilling experience. It's such an interesting way to do TV. Yeah, it's sort of in that middle spot between like a normal like 45 minute, like 12 episode long season or something like that, and like a full feature length film. It's like feels that weird little it's kind of a mini series almost but in this really strange way yeah and i think it's a really bold format that pays off extraordinarily well yeah because it allows you to tell these really interesting mystery stories that need that like breadth of time and needs to not have a gap between it to be able to tell the story absolutely and so i mean we've got a long ways to wait yet for season three but i'm really excited you'll probably watch it about a year after it's done and i'll have forgotten all about it by the time you get around to it I, I promise, if when Sherlock season three comes out, I'll watch it. and We will talk about it when it airs. Okay, good. I promise. But in any case, you're not going to keep that promise. I no. I I mean, I just it's a weird thing where I actually forgot part of the story is that why I waited on watching episode two was because I wanted to read the Hound of the Basket Hounds Hound of the Baskervilles again before I watched the episode. Why? And I don't know. Now <laughs> I don't know now. But I, I wound up it took me a while to get through it for some reason because I was doing all this other stuff at the time and then I forgot about Sherlock and then I kinda got back to it when the Blu-ray came out and it's I'm an idiot. Yeah, because God, we were going to do a podcast episode on it. It was yes. like Well I guess we're not. Especially yeah. at some point it's like F yeah, yeah, whatever. Alright. But it's it's one of the best things that aired on T V this year. I think it's the seventh best, again, a lot of good stuff here, hard to make the delineations. It's a good show. And I, I love Sherlock Holmes, and I love how they do this, and, yep. you know, can't wait for more. Yep, I loved at the end when Benedict Cumberbatch turned into Smaug and took over the Lonely Mountain. I thought that was a brilliant plot twist. Well, I was, I mean, just the, the, the way they tied in Conan Doyle with Tolkien and the styles of, like, Stephen Moffat and Peter Jackson, just really great. Yeah, just crossover. mixed together, and it's like, all of a sudden you see, we haven't been in London this entire time. This is fucking Rivertown. Holy shit. It was amazing. So, yeah. What yeah. a plot twist. What a plot twist. What a plot twist. All right. Number six on my list of TV's best of 2012 is HBO's Girls. Uh, this is a new show that started this year. It's a half-hour sort of comedy, sort of drama. It's... It's a dramedy. I hate that word. It's not a word. No. Um, <laughs> this is actually... One of the easiest ways to, to talk about the show is sort of like, you know how FX is Louie, which is a little higher on this list. We'll get to that. Uh, the whole deal with Louie is FX gives him an insanely small amount of money, and then Louie can go do whatever he wants. And why yeah. the show works so well is Louie just has such a strong artistic voice, and you would just want to see how he views the world. Mm-hmm. HBO kind of cut Lena Dunham, who's the creator of the show and the star, a similar deal for Girls. Now, Girls is much more serialized. It's got actual supporting cast members and things like that. But... It's sort of a similar thing where you can tell it's a low-budget show. It's not, you know, they're not, you know, fighting dragons or anything. Um, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, that would be awesome. If there was a show called Girls, and it was like basically Game of Thrones. I think that would like, be what an a anime. great bait and switch. That would be an anime. I yeah. think <laughs> they, they'd be fighting dragon gods. Yeah. All right, but the power of friendship. Yeah, Lena Dunham is just—I love her voice. She's got a fascinating perspective. She's got a perspective that's different than anything else on TV, not just because she's a woman and her show is centered around young women, but because I think she comes from a generation that is not hugely represented on TV, a perspective that is not hugely represented on TV, and it's just the show is different than anything else airing right now, and when I sat down to watch it the first time, I think like four episodes had aired, and I 
you know, booted up HBO Go on the Xbox, and I sat down just to watch the pilot because I'd heard good things about it, and wound up watching all four in one go, and once I was done, all I wanted to do was watch more of this show because it was just... The characters are so well drawn, the world just feels so authentic is the word we keep going back to, and again, the voice of the show is just so different and fresh and new, and the perspectives are so fresh and different and new, and everything about it is just really compelling in that way, and it's just, it was kind of addictive to watch. Um, uh, people, a lot of people did not like it for the same reasons. We talked about Judd Apatow's This Is 40 earlier this podcast. Yeah. Um, and this is produced by Judd Apatow, too. Girls has similar issues in terms of how it divides people, because it's the characters are not meant to be likable. I think you're meant to like them on a certain level as, like, human beings who are complex and multifaceted. Mm-hmm. But you don't sit down, like, Lena Dunham's character, Hannah Horvath, is not meant to be, like, charming and nice and likable from the get-go. You kind of... You, the more Actually, the worse she gets as the show goes along, the more you kind of like her, because you see different sides of her. Yeah. And it's just really well done. It's... I, I, I think one of the biggest barriers for entry to, to, to entry for a lot of people is that it's got kind of a weird title. I don't know why it's called Girls. Yes, the main characters are women. There's a lot of things with main characters who are women. You don't... Yeah. I, and it's, it's not specifically a show all about femininity. It's from a female perspective and deals with female issues more than other shows do because it's one of the few shows run by women on TV. Mm-hmm. But it's not, you know, it's not just about, like, the state of girlhood. And so I think it's, it's one of those shows where they didn't know what to call it because yeah. it's a lot of different things at once. It's just kind of about the lives of these characters. But and it's those really, characters are girls, so yeah, girls. girls. But it's very funny. It can be very dramatic, too. I mean, it's often very dramatic and dark and interesting. Um, you know, the characters are always making mistakes in their life because they're, you know, young and in their 20s and, you know, they're in and New York. Girls. Which is, but, which is a challenging place to begin with, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it does a lot of things really, really well. This was a pretty spectacular debut season from start to finish. It comes back in January, and I'm very excited to see where it goes from here. I, I think it's a damn good show, um, and just, again, it, it sort of deals... This is another thing, is that a lot of TVs on this list, and, and a lot of TV shows airing right now, really kind of don't deal with modern times. Even Sherlock is set in modern times, but it's that's not really what it's about. Yeah. And and it's just it's sort of interesting that this is a show that kind of tackles like young people in the year 2012. What's life like? And I like that. And I and I just I love how it does it. It's a really good show, and had a lot of fun watching it this year. So that's my number six. Cool. All right, number five is AMC's Breaking Bad. Don't spoil anything for me. I will not spoil anything for you. I promise. I'm just gonna say. Uh, Breaking Bad was number two on my list last year, because season four, which you did see, right? Yeah. Okay, season four, I can talk about that. Season four was one of the all-time great TV seasons. Just a phenomenal 13-episode run that got, like, exponentially better, not just from episode to episode, but kind of from moment to moment. Yeah. It's just an endless freight train where when you get to the final episode, and they blow Gus Fring the fuck up... And he turns into Two-Face. But, like, when that happens and it's over, it's just, it's sort of like you realize you've been holding your breath for 13 weeks and then you kind of release. And that's, it's just, it's great. The thing I'll say is that Breaking Bad kind of got to a point in season four, though, where that was the end of a big era of the show. Yeah. They still had, obviously, more story to do, mm-hmm. but it means you kind of have to restart. And so season five is a different kind of season. And actually, my favorite things about season five is how different it is. It is, in many ways, a reboot where they have to get things going again. Because Gus Fring's whole meth operation is gone. Walter White, knowing Walter White, doesn't want to just throw his hat down. Um, yeah. So I don't think that's a spoiler to say. Yeah, he no. kind of gets back in the business. And, what? And it's, what? Yeah. 
I thought he was going to become a chemistry teacher and, like, live a normal life after he fucking killed a dude. Yeah. Lots of dudes. Like, blew him the fuck up. It's like, oh, okay, chemistry teacher. I'm fine. So, a lot of really good stuff this year as Brian Cranston's uh, Walter White just got darker and darker and darker. And uh, obviously lots of great supporting performances from the usuals. Aaron Paul, um... God, I forget the name of his wife now, and I feel horrible because she's a really good actress, and she's this was her best year by far. Um, but especially Jonathan Banks this year was just fantastic. He's Mike Ehrmantraut, who you would remember as Gus's fixer. Yeah, yeah. And he, obviously, Gus is dead. Mike has a bigger role to play, mm-hmm. and he's he's the heart and soul of this season, and he's so good. And just many of my favorite moments in this season are revolving around him. Um, so just great character work, great acting the, the, some of the best visuals on television looks gorgeous, sounds gorgeous, great writing most of the time. Where Breaking Bad suffered this year and why it fell to number five for me is that AMC made a stupid decision, and I don't like this decision, that they were going to have this final season be 16 episodes and they were going to split it into two eight-episode runs aired a year apart, effectively meaning they had two more seasons to do. Yeah. Because while they're technically each called season five, this is its own season. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end in terms of arc. You know, it's just not like the show ends, yeah. but it's an arc. Mm-hmm. And it's a full arc. And it feels to me like a really good 13-episode arc that was unnecessarily compressed into eight episodes. And with those five missing hours, they had to take more narrative shortcuts than they have before, where Breaking Bad is a very procedural... It's not a procedural, but it's about the procedure and the process yeah. and how they do everything. And usually there aren't plot holes in Breaking Bad because they're very meticulous about showing every single step. Yeah. I mean, what were the first couple episodes? They kill two guys and have to spend three episodes disposing of the bodies. Yeah. That's what Breaking Bad is. Fucking awesome. Yeah. And season five, it ran into a couple of things where it's just like, there were... You saw the scenes a little more. There were just moments where you just felt like... It's a, it's a little more contrived, or it's not quite as well fleshed out. Like, this character, when this character gets to this moment, there, there should have been more steps along the way. Things like that. And even yeah. the point they get to at the end of the eight episodes, I feel... I don't think they botched it, but I think they needed... There just needed to be a little more time to set things up. In particular, the whole finale this year felt like it, it was three different episodes they just patched together. Because it had three different endings to that episode. And, like, arcs within that episode. So it ended with Walter White going to the Grey Havens? Yes. Yeah. Not that kind of... Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Return of the King? Yes. But, you know, so Breaking Bad is still obviously one of the best shows on TV. Really good. This was just a lesser season. I think it, you know, still good. Still definitely worth watching. Still great at times. It's just number five this year. And yeah. not quite number two as it was before. So, there okay, you go. Until it's over so I can... Watch it all. Yeah, so I can finish that. Not long to wait yet. It'll air yeah. in, like, June, and then it'll... Only eight episodes, so... Yep. That's good. And I, and I mean, I am definitely... I think the decision to set an end date is awesome, because Breaking Bad is not the kind of show that should go on. Yeah, on it definitely on. needs to have a good, yeah. conclusive ending to it. And if nothing else, Season 5, throughout its run, not just where they get in the end, it sets up for, like, I can definitely see this is going to be a very interesting last eight episodes, and they've got a lot of places to go that could be... They like. I would have assumed... You know, back in the day when you start watching, it's like, okay, this is just going to end with Walter White getting his and getting shot at the end. Yeah. There's a lot of directions they could go now. And I think you could tell that from season four, even. There's just yeah. a lot of places to go with this, and I'm really interested. So, there you go. Number four. I wonder how many people have even heard of this show. I only heard of it because you told me about it. All right. This is BBC America's presentation of The Hour. It's a BBC show from across the pond. And it's just a phenomenal drama. I think it is, at this moment, the second best drama on TV. It's 
Madman asking that it's set in the 50s. It's got a really, really good period style. It's just got beautiful cinematography and production design. Just great writing and characterization. And it's set in, like, the behind the scenes of this news program in 1950s Britain called The Hour. And these three main characters played by Roma Laguerre, Ben Wishaw, and Dominic West. Dominic West is the anchor. Ben Wishaw is one of the, like, writers and producers. And then uh, Roma Laguerre, who's sort of the, I guess you would call the main character. They're all sort of the main character. But she's the producer on the show. And it's them trying to make a really good news show, an informative news show, a, a news show that, like, questions government and different issues in the 1950s. In many ways, it, it does what The Newsroom tried to do this summer on HBO. The Newsroom is Aaron Sorkin's new show, and it's one of the worst things I've ever watched. And I have no idea why I watched a whole season of it. I was torturing myself. It's I, like when I played Assassin's Creed 1 again. Yeah. It's just like, why the fuck am I doing this? This thing sucks! Because I, I kind of like some of Aaron Sorkin's stuff, and I agree with him politically on every point he makes. I just think he's the smuggest fucking asshole, and he cannot write a good character to save his goddamn life. And just the Newsroom was annoying as hell, and it had no sense of what it wanted to say about news and journalism, except that Aaron Sorkin's opinion should be the only thing that's ever reported. Uh, the Hour is a much, even though it's set in the past, it's a much smarter examination of journalistic ethics and politics and how you sort of, how history and culture and journalism all intersect. And it's, it's a really smart show. It's just so fucking smart. But it's also just really good kind of pulp fiction where it's a slick and suspenseful detective story at times, because these are investigative journalists. They're, the first season, which aired last year, had sort of an Ian Fleming, uh, John Le Carre spy component to it. And this season has a crime component to it, where they're investigating sort of this organized crime unit. And it just it all comes together really well. And there have only been four episodes that aired this calendar year, because it started really late this year, the second season. And it's a six-episode second season. The last two, or I guess one more will air this year, but after we record this podcast, and the finale will air in January. But just these four episodes of season two have been so good, and the show's taken a big leap forward. I just think it, it has these characters down pat. It's The supporting cast gets better every week. They added in Peter Capaldi, which is important, because Peter Capaldi's a really good actor, and he really has made this season kind of click more than it did last year. And... The hour's just really, really good. I, if you like Mad Men, this is not a show that's all that much like Mad Men in terms of the actual text of it, but I can see how stylistically you would compare yeah. it. And if you like that, definitely watch this. If you're just interested in... If, if you're an Anglophile, it's definitely worth watching because I think it's really interesting how they have to sort of maneuver around BBC and government in the 1950s when they did not have full freedom of the press. Those are really interesting issues that is yeah. a very specific you know, England context, and mm -hmm. I like that. Um, but it's just, it's great, and it's just so much phenomenal acting and, and writing. Uh, Abby Morgan is the creator. She writes every episode. I think this season she may have, she got a writing staff, but it's only two other people. But it's, it's really good, and I, I think it's also, it's also cool to have a, a female head writer examining this period um, from that specific perspective. It's, it's really well done, and I just, I, the hour is very addictive. Every episode is a full hour long. It's like a full 60 minutes but so much happens. Like, they really make use of those 60 minutes, where only four episodes have aired this year. It feels like several more have aired. So that's why it's this high on the list. But cool. Love the hour. Number three is Network TV's best comedy, several years running, Parks and Recreation. Fantastic show. I, it's, it's hard to even know what to say about the show anymore. It's, it's a perfect series most of the time. They just they know these characters. They know the world they live in. 
it's it's to me what I think Simpsons was back in its early days, like seasons two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, where like Springfield was such a rich and diverse community with so many great characters they could play with, and it had such kind of a warm heart, but also it could be screamingly funny. It could be socially conscious. It could make big sweeping points, but it could also just be riotously funny. Yeah, and Parks and Recreation is live action, obviously. And it's it's got different you know goals and stuff, but it kind of feels like that where this community they've made in Pawnee, Indiana, Indiana is so rich and all the characters are so good, and it 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 can be screamingly funny, but also very sweet in how it deals with the characters and their relationships and the romances and things like that. It does not fall into any of the pitfalls a lot of sitcoms do these days. It's just it's it's so damn good, and it's it's really too bad. Parks and Recreation started out with a terrible pilot. And, yeah, because that's the only thing I ever saw from it, and then it, I know, yeah. I know, it got obviously a lot, lot better. But well, and like, Parks, it, it was just unfortunate yeah. because basically how it was ordered is they wanted an Office spinoff, and so they yeah. kind of made this, but then they they took out the Office elements, but they were really rushed, and so that first season, which was only six episodes, was really hurt because of that, and so then they took the summer off and kind of reoriented and said, all right, what works, what doesn't, and then they came back, and it just season two premiere onwards, it's a great show. And I, I mean, that's cool. That to to the extent it. where, could you just skip season one? Like, is there yes. enough important season one that you need to see it? I would watch the finale of season one, because the finale's good, and that's where they started figuring it out. And I think okay. it, it just sets a couple things in motion for season two. So I'd start with season one finale, rock show, and then go forward. You do not need to see the other season one episodes. They're, none of them are as horrible as the pilot, but none of them are very good. And, I mean, the key thing they, the difference they made is that the Leslie Nope character started out as sort of this weird Michael Scott clone, and then they figured out what she actually is, is she's the opposite of Michael Scott. She's super smart and super capable and super, I mean, I guess Michael Scott is enthusiastic about his job, but sometimes in the wrong ways. Mm -hmm. So now Leslie Nope, from season two onwards, is like the greatest person in the world, and that's just awesome that you have this character in the middle who's a really, really good person, has issues to work with, obviously, but she's hyper-capable, and that's a really cool dynamic for a comedy, I think, because most comedies, are they try to make it revolve around idiots. The people on Parks and Recreation are not idiots. They're all pretty capable people at what they do. And that works really, it's a really different dynamic, but it works really well. And it's, you know, the best season the show ever did was season three last year. And that was just a perfect 16-episode run. And I don't think season four and now the first half of season five have been quite to that level. I don't know if they ever could have been. Mm-hmm. But what the show's done this year in 2012 is they've just gone deeper and deeper and deeper with the characters where you are so invested in their happiness that when good or bad things happen to them, it hits you in a really strong way. And Parks and Recreation, they know they don't always have to be funny either. They can just do good drama among the characters. And they can sort of talk about the world and sort of politics, not in a you know incendiary sense, but just sort of like, here's what government can actually do when it's working at its best and things like that. And it's it's just... It, it is what it is. It's a friggin' great TV show, often perfect TV show. And it was my number one show of the year last year. It's fallen to number three not because of anything the show did. It's just that, one, a show came back that is one of the best shows ever made. And then a show that I liked before got really, really much better this year. So, And we'll get to those in a second. Yeah. But Parks and Rec is number three, and it's awesome. And, yeah, Sean, if you ever want to watch it or anyone else, I'd recommend season one finale or season two premiere, which has a really funny... Gay penguin wedding. <laughs> so that kind of sounds like something that would be in Persona. <laughs> all right, it all comes back to Persona. It does. Like this entire list, I've just come with like a hundred more things I wish I had said about Persona, but I would be here for like five more hours if I did. All right, there's a fox in Persona that that gives you leaves that restore your magical power. I'm just gonna say that. 
What does that have to do with anything? It, nothing. I just thought I had to admit, like, I c- couldn't believe that I talked about Persona, and I never mentioned Fox. Because Fox is fucking awesome. That's it. Fox is awesome. My number two show of the year is FX's Louie. This is the most unpredictable and idiosyncratic show on television, and I think in season three, it became one of the all-time great TV shows. And I know a lot of people thought season two was that leap moment for the show, and I thought season two was a big leap forward from season one. Don't get me wrong. It had phenomenal content. I also think it had some disposable episodes, and I think it was a... It was not a rocky run, but it just it just had some things that I thought were not perfect, and it could have been... But it did have the episode where they go meet their grandma. That's so that, funny. That so is, great. I think about that episode all the fucking time. It's great, yeah. No, season two of Louis is a great season yeah. of television. No doubt about it. I thought season three was even better, because I, I wanted to make sure I'd watched it to make this list. And basically, a couple days ago, I bought it on iTunes, because I wanted to wait until the season was over and then watch mm-hmm. the whole thing. And I have never watched a season of TV as fast as I watched Louis season three. It took me about a day and a half. I watched just, I just marathoned this sucker. And it was, and, and all I wanted to do while I was watching and then when it was over was just watch more Louis. This was such a phenomenal season of television. I don't even know where to begin, but I think it just, it became more funny, more poignant, more thought-provoking, more dramatically effective more socially conscious, just everything about it got bigger and better and clearer, and I think it made a leap from great television to sometimes transcendent television, where it's just, it's like a great medicine for the soul. It's like just, it's philosophy in humor, and in, in it's just, it's brilliant. And I think one of the big changes Louis made this year to his show is that he decided to introduce some continuity. Previous seasons had no continuity between episodes, really. Sometimes, like, the Pamela yeah, character... Yeah, the Pam character is like, the only example I can really yeah. think of. But otherwise, I mean, for instance, he had a brother in one episode, then never had a brother again. Yeah. He's had multiple sisters, all these different things. Um, and, and other seasons, they were just self-contained short films, basically. Mm-hmm. This year, there's that kind, still kind of that short film quality, but there's continuity. You meet his ex-wife, for instance, in episode one, and she recurs throughout the season. He deals with her a lot, and it always builds off what they did last time. There's a wonderful two-episode... Uh, two-parter in the early part of the season where he dates this woman played by Parker Posey and he keeps thinking about her through the whole season and then their story kind of wraps up in the finale. So just by having those little seeds of continuity, and I think this is enough. Louis does not need to be serialized, but it needs to have continuity, I think, Mm -hmm. because it just got better with having that continuity where everything that happens to Louis matters because it happens it happened to him the yeah. louis in episode four had the experiences in episode three mm-hmm. and so when you get to episode 13 which is a beautiful beautiful ending to the season just transcendent in what a beautiful message it imparts about sort of communication and togetherness and and just like community and louis need to not be isolated she's beautiful but it works because we've seen him for 13 episodes and those 13 episodes mattered and happened Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the ways, reasons it stepped forward. But man, just every episode this year was, if not a home run, really good and memorable. And it had all sorts of great guest appearances. Like it had the Parker Posey episode I mentioned. Robin Williams was in this season. David Lynch played a coach for him when he was trying to get the late show job, which is this three-episode arc near the end of the season, which is unbelievably good. Just, it's, it's so good. And, and I think the other thing I would say is season two 
sort of the leap season two took from season one is it became more dramatically effective. Yeah. But sometimes, and, and this isn't this is not a complaint. It's just a lot of season two was not funny. It was not intended to be funny. It was dramatic. Yeah. Season three, I feel like weaves the drama and comedy together to a point where they're not separate. Every episode has both. It's every episode I laughed out loud multiple times, sometimes screaming with laughter, but I, even in those moments, sometimes it could be really sad or affecting or just something, thought-provoking. So, it's just, again, just Louis got better this year to me, and it got, I feel like this is a show that's always had maybe more potential than anything else on TV, with the exception of my number one show, and boy, howdy, just like, realizing that potential this year to me. It just, it, it flew through the stratosphere, and it's, it was easily my number two. I actually considered it for number one, but it's, it's so good. And so I would recommend watching it when you have the time. Yeah, no, I yeah. think I'm probably going to watch it over the Christmas break. Yeah, the yeah full it's season three's done. On my Apple TV, so if oh, you want to cool. watch it. Um, in any case, just love Louie, and I don't know what else there is to say about it, because I don't really want to spoil stuff, but... It's so damn good. And if you haven't seen it before, I would watch the whole thing. I mean, it's not yeah. continuity heavy, but it's all good, so mm-hmm. watch it. Um, it's all available on home video and digital download. And I think the first two seasons are on Netflix? Oh, they might be. They might be. They may yeah. take I think, down. I think at least the first one was when I watched okay. the first one, but I don't know. That's how I watched the first one. I don't have Netflix anymore, so in any case. My number one TV show of 2012 is AMC's Mad Men. Mad Men... Nothing else I watched this year, TV or movies or anything else, came even close to matching this season of Mad Men, just as most seasons of Mad Men, nothing else touches them. This is just one of my favorite sort of ongoing stories ever. It's better than most films I've ever watched. It's probably my favorite TV show of all time. The competition there would be The Wire, which I think... Well, I mean, Mad Men's not over, so I would have to wait for Mad Men to end to say which one's better. But I, I just... Mad Men's so good, and this season was so great, and... The thing about Mad Men is it is a legitimate work of art. It's it's like great literature. It is just deep and multifaceted and layered and nuanced and complex to a level that we are not accustomed to in film or TV in this era. And it is, you can just pick it apart to your heart's content and you will not find seams in it. It, with possible exceptions here and there, once in a blue moon... Mad Men just is so meticulously constructed, and I can say without a doubt that the, my favorite writing experiences all year, and keep in mind that I do this because I love to write, not just because I love to watch these things. Yeah. My favorite writing experiences were I blogged, or I, I reviewed and analyzed every episode of Mad Men, and it was so much fun to do because the more you think about Mad Men, and the more you talk about it and discuss it, the better it gets. And I feel like that's such a rare quality, you know? Yeah. There's so many things that the more you talk about them, the worse they get because... Not not everything can be perfectly constructed. Yeah. But Mad Men is the opposite of that. It gets better the more you talk about it, and better the more you write about it. And I had... There was such good reception to the articles I wrote about Mad Men this year, because I... And, and I, I feel that's more on Mad Men than it is on me. It gave me a lot to write about. And I'm excited to write about season six when it comes back. It just was a phenomenal season of television. It dealt... it Again, it just... It keeps... I don't know if this was the best show this season the show has ever done, because the show is just so consistent. Every episode's good, from season one to now. And so I just think what this season did, though, is it just went... It continued to get deeper with the characters, got a little darker, got a little more contemplative. It it, it broadened its, its sort of implications in terms of how it talks about society and then these characters on their own. And just the deeper they go into the 60s, the bigger points they can make, the better points they can make. It's... It's just a, a show that gets that seems to get better and better 
because it feels like the more time you spend with these characters in this world, the more they can do with it. Yeah. And I love the hell out of this show. Can't wait for more. It's, you know, my favorite TV series at the moment, and no question, it was the best show of 2012. Even if Louie, when I watched it the other day, was so good it made me kind of question, but then I had to kind of keep in mind, I'm, I'm in the moment of watching Louie. Then when yeah. I finished the season and kind of took a look at it, I'm like, this is great. It's not Mad Men. And nothing else on TV right now is Mad Men. It's just uh, the acting, the writing, the production design, the directing, the cinematography, the music. It's just the, it, it's the best at everything it does, and it's great. So, yeah. Mad Men's probably one you're waiting for it to be done yeah, to watch. Yeah, okay. that's what... I tried to watch, like, a little bit of it... Oh, actually, a while ago. Probably when it was in its third season, and I was like, I need to wait. Like, I can't... This is okay. one of those shows where it's like, I've, if, I, if I start watching this now, I'll never be able to finish it, and I'll hate myself for never being able to yeah. finish it. So, yeah. And it's, you know, it's not like Lost, where you're, you're, there are lingering questions every year, like, what is the smoke monster? But it's... Yeah. You want to feel... Yeah, you but with serialized shows like that, I need, like, that yeah. momentum of, like, keeping on watching it. And as soon as that momentum yeah. stops, it's really hard to keep it, get it back up for me. And I think the other reason I have to say Mad Men is the best show on TV is that not only does it have, like, what you just mentioned, the momentum and the serialization, but it still is very careful to craft individual masterpiece episodes where each episode is a full experience. Mm-hmm. This is not like some other shows on the list, like, let's say, Game of Thrones, where I don't remember what individual episodes of Game of Thrones are, because it's basically a 10-hour season they chop into hours and air it. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. That's a fine way to do it, but I, I think it's even more satisfying. That's a fine way to do it when you pick up the DVD box set, yeah. like when you're watching it as it airs. Right, and yeah. Mad, Men, Mad Men works perfectly as a DVD box set, but it works just as well as it airs, and that's kind of a unique quality these days. Mm-hmm. And so it's just it's really fun to watch week to week, because every week you sit down, you watch an hour, that's a great hour, and it's like a great short story. And each short story works in a larger context, but each one's great. And this season in particular had just this 9 or 10 episode run in the middle, that was the most of the season, obviously, yeah. that was just masterpiece after masterpiece after masterpiece, and that's probably why this is my favorite season, is just, if you were to list the top ten episodes of Mad Men, many of them would come from this year. So, and that's, cool. that's incredible. Uh, as for shows I kind of left off this year, I'm going to go really quickly through one or two here. Homeland was my number four show last year, because it had a really good first season. Season two of Homeland was a flaming piece of shit at times. <laughs> And the, the amount that show just fell off a cliff. The first couple episodes were okay. It had one really good episode at, like, episode four or five. And then it just... They just held hands and ran over a cliff and never looked back. And Homeland got pretty wretchedly terrible this year. And I watched through season two because I had started it. I'm not going to yeah. stop. I don't know if I will pick up with season three because I don't know if I give a shit at this point. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever seen a show that was so good in its first season become so painful in a second. I mean, Homeland always had 24 in its DNA. Yeah. Because it's from the creators of 24, but it was it was a higher brow 24. It was a smart 24. It dealt with those issues 24 talked about, but in a real world intelligent context, yeah. not comic book, you know, show me where yeah, the terrorist power are. bullshit. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's where Homeland became this year, though, but even kind of worse than 24 at times, because it... 24... Whatever you want to say about it, it always knew who Jack Bauer was, I feel. It had a handle on him. And this year, they completely forgot who their main character, Carrie Matheson, was. She became a different person. Just wholesale. Character transplant. The Carrie Matheson of season one is dead. I don't know where she went. She's dead. And Claire Danes could not give a good performance this year because she had nothing to play. And 
Damian Lewis was still good as, as Sergeant Brody, but his family became so annoying. I mean, Sean, here's what Homeland did this year. Okay. Homeland had one of the only good teenage characters on TV last season. Yeah. Sergeant Brody's daughter, Dana, was an interesting teenage character. That's pretty rare, right? Yeah. This year, she and the vice president's son hit a woman with their car <laughs> and kills her, and that was a arc during the season. Was oh, Dana Brody so, having uh, killed someone? It's one of those like way overbearing like side character yep. plots. Yeah, yep. those kill shows. Yep. I hate it when they kill those. And oh, Jesus. And his whole family became so annoying. And then the, the like, all you just having told me that I feel like I just watched it's like season two of Homeland. Like I feel like I just absorbed it through that yep. sentence. And a lot of other stuff. <laughs> since I haven't even seen season one. And the main plot mechanics were equally dumb at times, and it just... It, the finale was okay. I'll give them that. The finale was a step up from the rest of the season, but not... But also, it was a step down in other ways, because it confirmed the show is sort of moving in a direction that I don't give a shit about. So, whatever. Homeland would not even come close to my top ten this year. Um, and the other one that was left outside... Not because it was horrible, but because it was kind of slight and it was definitely disappointing was Doctor Who this year. Yeah. And at, we talked about this at length on the podcast. Doctor yeah. <laughs> Who had five episodes this year. None of them were bad, but three of them were pretty mediocre to disappointing. Yeah. Two of them were good, sometimes very good. Mm-hmm. But as a whole, those that five-episode miniseason was like, that was the messiest arc I've ever seen on Modern Who. It yeah, just, I agree. It, yeah, it definitely did not... It felt like it was this weird leftover from season six that they're like didn't know what to do with because they didn't like they decided to bring back Amy and Rory and so it's like they had that left to like sort of try to wrap up. Yeah, it just and became then, a mess of a like five episode arc. And our biggest complaint, I think, mutually is that they had a great ending point for Amy and Rory in season six, and because they decided to bring them back, they brought them to a pretty unsatisfying ending point this yeah, year. That was so. just kind of obnoxious. So, but hopefully sh- that means that since. That's done with yeah. that. The rest of season seven can be really good. They're getting a new companion, a new really cool looking old school TARDIS. Completely new titles too. They're yep. doing a new theme song so. and new arrangement. So I, I hope that getting into this new era, for one, I hope uh, Matt Smith's Doctor has never stopped being interesting or anything, but it'll be cool to see him going in new yeah, directions. Yeah, I really want to see like with a new companion, see how he yeah. interacts with them. So there's a lot to look forward to with Doctor Who, but what we a got new so Neil far, Gaiman episode. Yeah, fuck yeah, Neil Gaiman. Fucking Cyberman episode. I am praying, praying to God that Neil Gaiman can fucking fix the Cyberman bullshit they got into. Well, if he can, nobody can, right? Yeah, exactly. If they, if he can't do it, just stop writing Cyberman. Just like, just pretend they never existed. But all right. So, Sean, my laptop battery is almost dead. Yeah, we've and been this... going on for a while now. So, final thoughts on 2012. Persona Four. That was that. That's a, that was a hell of a fucking game, man. That, that was my life for the last, like, six months, so. All right. Persona 4. Okay. And a fox. It's a kick-ass fox.